Controversial convention bound for the Bluff City next Easter Sunday. The American Atheists Association coming with them, a guest speaker from the Satanic Temple. WMC Action News 5, Sasha Jones, live now with a story that has some residents raging tonight. Sasha? More than a thousand atheists from across the country expected to be here at the Peabody Hotel on Easter. And many people believe that this is just a slap in the face to the people who do believe in God. The Peabody Hotel will be filled with more than just ducks this upcoming Easter. I don't think it's right. Atheists from across the country are flocking to Memphis and staying at the hotel on Resurrection Sunday. The American Atheist National Convention is being held at the hotel April 2nd through the 5th. It's kind of disrespectful to people who do believe. And when people show up to the Peabody Hotel for the convention, they'll have the chance to hear from a variety of speakers and even one from the Satanic Temple. And the group says even though there's a lot of misconceptions on why they're coming here, they're coming here to promote love and not hate. American atheists say they fight for the civil liberties of atheists. And conventions like this one help to build community among those who do not believe. What we want to show people is that they don't have to stay in a religion they no, no longer believe in uh, because there's a community waiting for them when they leave. The group's decision to come to Memphis may rub some people's spirits the wrong way. Everything about Christ is risen. It, you know, anything that comes against that can't touch it. But others just don't see the big deal. Peabody Hotel is a business, it's not a religious entity. It's freedom of religion, whatever, you know, it's all good. We did reach out to the Peabody Hotel for a comment, but we have not heard back from them just yet. And the American Atheist Group says that they choose Easter weekend to hold their conference each and every year because it's a good time of the year to travel. And a lot of atheists don't have much to do on Easter. Uh, In Memphis, Sasha Jones, WMC Action News 5. Well, the the reason that they do it... Hi, everybody. Yeah, yeah, now we're on. Now we're on. Smooth intro. Welcome to the Godless Revolution. I'm Dan Ellis. Meow. That was Matt. Matt, Matt cut in. You went early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I knew where you were going. He usually he, Ryan usually gets to cut out my meows, but uh, yeah. Well, I'm Ryan. <laughs> now Duffy. you can't. Yeah. The meow cutter. <laughs> and I'm Greg Clark, the guest for the evening. Doctor Greg yes. Clark in happy the studio with us this evening. We're very very happy to have you here. Great to be here. I'm really excited about the show. Yeah. So going back to the, your little opening thing yeah. there. You know, there there are a variety of reasons why the convention is held over Easter weekend. The ones that they mentioned are valid, sure. The other ones are that it's a lot cheaper to have a convention on Easter weekend because not much else is going on. No one so, else is running the place out. So they get, you know, American Atheist gets a big discount on hotel rooms, on travel. You know, it's a lot cheaper for everybody to travel. So yeah, there there's a lot of different reasons, and it's on Sun, it's on Easter Sunday, so that's kind of fun. That poke a little fun, <laughs> a little bit maybe. I and and then you know it gives everybody who's not a Christian, who may also be an atheist, you know, something to do on Easter Sunday. Yeah, I'm 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 going. I will be there. We we booked our hotel room at the Peabody. And got our airfare and tickets to the convention and everything already, so I'm really excited about it. And I'm super excited to meet uh, Lucian Greaves, aka Doug Mesner, aka uh, this this Satanic Templates. That's <laughs> Satanic Templates. <laughs> yeah, or Temple the Satanic Templars that are attending. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> 
So, you know, let's think about some of the things, the comments that we heard there, that it's it's disrespectful, too bad, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's wrong. Um, We had the convention here last year in Salt Lake City. It was wonderful. Yes, I had a great time. But to remind our listeners, before the convention, the uh, American atheists were looking to put up a billboard. Mm -hmm. The simple existence of atheism was too much for several advertising companies. Mm-hmm. And, and a real take-home message from that is that the only way not to offend anybody is to say absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. nothing on the billboard that was offensive other than <clears throat> your existence. So, yeah, you want to dial yeah. it down so as to be so accommodationist and so not confrontational as to not to offend anybody? Well, that means dialing it down into non-existence, and that's right. not an option. Yeah, yeah it, for so many people, yeah. it doesn't matter how – how how light you are tiptoeing around something, they're always going to be offended. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you can put something as delicately, as nicely, and as beautifully, and, and as full of love as you possibly can physically make your message, and somebody will still complain about it. Yep. I've I've kind of given up trying to be Mr. Super Nice Guy on a bunch of different stuff because it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter. Somebody's yeah. always yeah. going to be pissed off. Well, and that's that's what it is to have privilege for decades, you know. And mm-hmm. this is this is the same reason why we find, uh, you know, on the Venn diagram, a huge overlap between the religious Reich and <laughs> the white Americans who are also still racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because they've enjoyed privilege for so long that they don't like blacks and they don't like atheists, mm-hmm. and that's still the case. Yes, when when you've had privilege for too long, then equality seems like persecution. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Very well said. And, and how weak, how weak and ridiculous is your faith that it can't withstand a fucking billboard or a group of people gathering who don't hold the same belief. Yeah. As you? Where is your God? How, how weak is your fucking faith that you can't handle even the idea of people who don't share that belief gathering. And the only place in that billboard where it said atheist on it, was American Atheist Convention at the very bottom of it. Right. It was, in, the, in the context of it, it said nothing about atheist. Uh, well, they even wanted they even wanted the uh, the bunny ears gone on the little girl's head. It's like, yeah. Are, are you? Well, yeah. As, as far as serious? I know, the, the billboard companies were saying that it that it's counter to the morals of the community. That's a great point, and that's yeah. exactly what they said: is that it offended the moral standards of the community. Right. So, so think about that. Let that sink in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. If I or or Dan or Matt or Ryan were to say that uh, the community finds atheism morally repugnant, we would be accused of making a straw man argument. But the reality was, Yesco was making exactly that claim and yep. denying billboard space to American atheists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they run into the same problem wherever they try to put them up. Yeah, right. And somebody, I saw somebody make a comment today on an American atheist's post uh, saying, well, why do you have to have it in Memphis? You know, why don't you have it somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Kenya. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> the United States is a pretty large place and they have it all over the place. They, they move it around all the yeah. time. And, and honestly, one of the greatest things that they can do is to go into these communities like in the Bible Belt or yeah. here in Utah where, you know, religious indoctrination and, and the, 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 the saturation of religiousness across that area is so great that, you know, for those who don't participate in that, in, in whatever religious belief may be dominant, or if it's just a variety of different religious beliefs that, that, that are really pervasive in the area, 
it gives those people who don't share those beliefs hope that they're not the only, you know, yeah. it lets them know that they're not the only people out there who Atheism don't hold that same belief. hope. <laughs> Weird, right? <laughs> it also gives them a place to go for that one day for that year to be around like-minded people and get to see speakers that kind of, yeah. like, yeah, that's cool, or, or learn stuff from other uh, and I think, speakers. I think that's an I think that's an undervalued point, actually, because come even even coming up from Utah County, as I did to the convention, mm-hmm. it took me a full day, I've said this on the show before, to actually get comfortable with the group that I was around that I was able to say and feel and do, you know, whatever because I you don't to. normally get that opportunity. Yeah. No, I no, it's, it's constantly yeah, it suppressed. Was, yeah. I mean, you just have to. Yeah. So, so last year's convention was the first atheist free thinking, anything convention that I'd ever been to. And I, it was really eye opening to me in that I was just able to be myself. I didn't have to keep my guard up to make sure that I didn't let it slip that I, that I didn't believe. And I didn't have to worry about, you know, people saying some, some offensive religious bullshit around me. It was just, everybody could just be a human being. You didn't have to worry that you were going to offend somebody's delicate religious sensibilities. You could just, you could just be yourself. It was wonderful. It was so relaxing and freeing and, and just wonderful to be around so many people who didn't believe in God. Mm -hmm. I think it's even – sorry, go ahead, Doctor. So one of the important things we know from social psychology is that a single individual reinforcing the beliefs or instantiations of one individual make it so much easier. So there's these classic experiments, for example, where if you put somebody in a room – I mean they used to do this kind of thing in the old days and now, <laughs> now it's a little more tricky. Yeah. And, and there's a bunch of confederates in there, right? That's their stooges. They're playing along, right? But the person who's the subject in the experiment doesn't know this. And you do stuff like pouring smoke through the filters, right? And the first person looks around and nobody else is doing anything, so I guess it must be all right. Mm-hmm. Or the Kitty Genovese story, which may be slightly exaggerated. Someone's being hurt and nobody else is doing anything, so it must be all right. And that's kind of mm-hmm. like – being an atheist in a certain way, you look around, you go, am I the only sane person here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then somebody else speaks up and you go, right. The, the real difference is having just one other voice. The, mm-hmm. the big difference is between zero and one other person. Yeah. And then, then having a community is a huge issue oh, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the real important things of having a convention is knowing that you're not alone, that everybody's looking at the emperor there's no clothes on it, but everybody else is quiet, so it becomes a self-perpetuating, uh, you know, falsehood. Mm-hmm. And and so having a community where people can bounce off ideas and and as you say, feel feel yourself mm-hmm. and without self-centering all the time, which oh, yeah. is a big cognitive burden. Yeah, absolutely. And then so one of the things that we talked about last week while uh, Jeff was on the show was that here my voting district. Uh, my polling place is a church. And and I know I've seen comments from you about this subject where it really, really bothers me that I have to travel to a church, not 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 just myself, but that anybody has to travel to a church to vote because we know for a fact that the location and the surroundings and the setting have a huge impact on the way that people yep. will vote. Yep. And it really bothers me that in our supposed secular government to vote for representatives for us in that government, we in in a lot of cases have to travel to a religious institution to do that. So there's good empirical evidence for that. For example, um, there have been studies on on who lies, and the, the the short answer is everybody 
but not very much. Only enough that you can fudge factor your, yourself into rationalizing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then uh, with the studies, which I won't describe that, that test lying, you can ask what influences people so that they'll lie a little bit less. And, and there's a couple of kind of amusing anecdotes. One of them is if you give religious people reminders of the Ten Commandments, they become <laughs> – they, they reduce their lying. So there's metrics. Uh-huh. You can, there's actually quantifiable yeah. ways that they test the lying. They have this shredder that isn't really a shredder, so it's actually a lie. Um, but then they can <laughs> test the answers, right? Um, but if you give atheists the Ten Commandments – Reminders before they engage in this test, they also lie a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, um, and and then there's another uh, kind of amusing one too, which is that if you so Princeton has an honor code, okay, and it's actually rather nice because it it works and it illustrates the importance of self regulation rather than depending on an outside authority catching you, which mm-hmm. has some interesting analogies to religion, right? Mm. So so they yeah. they self regulate. And then you, you go and do the same test. And if you remind them of the honor code before they take this fake test, right, this, this experimental test, they, they, they cheat less. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you go, you go to MIT students and you say, you have to take this in provisions with the MIT honor code. And they sign it according to the MIT honor code. And they cheat less. <laughs> Except MIT doesn't have another. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so back, back to the, 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 the effects here on voting, right, is we think it's a landslide if an election is like 54% to 46% right. yeah. you know, on a presidential yeah. level. Right. That's only a few yeah. percentage points off of 50-50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some subtle factor that reminds voters that uh, Mitt Romney is faithful – and somebody else is of another faith mm-hmm. can swing election, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I, yeah, that's, it, that's it why it's not that I'm people. offended by walking into a church. No, it's that right. this will have a measurable impact on voting behavior yeah. in a way that is not appropriate in a secular society. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm so glad you're here this week to talk about that because you you put that so much more eloquently than I did last week when I just said, fucking makes me mad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or that any of us could have probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, but that's just, that's sort of surface level stuff, right? But the, but there also are incidences where voters turn up at churches and church volunteers add additional persuasion. That's right. Uh, and so, and so there's a whole nother component there. Um. Yeah. So, give us a little bit of your background. So, you you just told us about these studies and everything. What what is it that that you do? Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know you work with brains and things and stuff like that, and you're a science guy. Yeah. So, I study the nervous system, and uh, one of the interesting aspects of science is that your self definition evolves because you continue to learn and move in dir- new directions. But that's a different story. Um, what I do right now is I work in a kind of practical way to attach advanced prosthetic hands onto a user's own nervous system. So the idea would be to plug right into the arm nerves that still remain and still work. The person thinks about moving this advanced prosthetic hand and signals come down these biological wires. We capture them, we translate them, and the hand would move just like the natural biological hand would have moved because it's the same sorts of signals. Coming back the other way, if we were to send signals from this advanced prosthetic hand into the nerves, 
and activate these biological wires so that they send signals up to the brain. The brain doesn't know anything about what activated them and only knows it got the signal. Sure. So it will feel as if the hand is there. And that's important for two conceptual and practical reasons. One is that surprisingly, it's rather difficult to move if you don't have sensation. We mm-hmm. don't think about it because we uh, always have sensation. Just a little bit of mm-hmm. pressure and... Well, um, think about closing your eyes and, and almost touching your nose quickly. You can stop just short. You know yep. where your arm is in space. Think about my picking up this beer bottle. Okay, if I grab it too hard, right? If it were a solo cup, I would <laughs> yeah. squeeze it. Mm-hmm. If I grabbed it too lightly, I would drop it. So what do I have to do? I have to watch the arm move. I can't see behind the back of it anyway. Right. And then I hold it, but I have to consciously be thinking about holding my beer cup, and that's no fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the ability to just move naturally and quickly without a huge cognitive load is very important. But there's a more subtle part of this, which is poignant and very real. And and that is you want a person to feel whole again, not only the ability to feel, but to feel whole. And and you know that your body feels like yourself, Mm -hmm. but your body is actually, your body image is created in the brain. your brain, yeah. And there are actually disorders in which there's damage to certain parts of the brain where you don't know your arm is your arm, so you wake up in the morning and there's somebody else's arm there, kind of oh, weird. Really? Wow. Or going the other way that you don't um, even know it's there, you sensory neglect. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a map in your brain. And these people still have their hand in their brain. They have yeah. what's called a phantom hand. Right. I've heard of that. And they can even have phantom pain, mm-hmm. which raises mm-hmm. some interesting problems because yeah. how do you treat a body part that actually doesn't yeah. exist? Right. Yeah. yeah. How, do you, how do you give them painkillers? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, if you're always feeling like you're carrying around this three-pound artificial object that is hard to use and isn't part of you, then you're always going to feel the loss of that hand. But sure. if you've used – if you've ever – you know, even if you drive, after a while it becomes automatic and the mm-hmm. car starts mm-hmm. to feel like an extension of your body. Mm-hmm. And then you go to England and the cars are <laughs> like too close on the wrong side. It's like really scary, <laughs> right? So we want them to integrate this advanced prosthetic hand into their own body image. And part of that is that when they move or touch, they actually feel it. Mm. And that could reduce phantom pain, but also just make them feel like they feel more restored. human. Yeah, exactly so. So I, I'm, I'm you know, taking that it does uh, the sensory, like the, the can feel pressure and all that kind of stuff. Grab some, are they able to feel like heat and cold or any of the other sensations? Depends on what you activate in the, in the nerves. And from a technical perspective, it's somewhat more challenging to activate heat and pain. Not being able to activate pain is a good thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but it, it kind of speaks to the issue of, of why some things are easy and hard to activate. And, the, and the, the biophysical answer is you have big axons, big wires, big nerve fibers, and small ones. And that's related to the issue of how quickly they can conduct signals. So okay. a big fat fire hose can pump out more water than a skinny one can. And Evolutionarily, there are advantages, functional advantages to having certain signals that can carry information, can transmit quickly along these big wires and others that are slow. So you don't need a millisecond by millisecond update of uh, a toothache. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same now. It's the same 10 seconds ago. It'll be the same 10 seconds from now. But doing something mm-hmm. like reaching out and grabbing a ball, knowing where your arm is in space, requires closed loop control. Mm-hmm. Right, requires feedback. And that feedback has to be on time because if you find out you've moved your arm to the right spot, but it's a second too late that your 
find that out, it, it's not very functional. <clears throat> yeah, right. well, and, it, and it's a constant loop. It's not that you just send a command, put arm up, right? That's it's, correct. It's all of the it's all of the points along that movement where you're receiving feedback and sending signals to your arm to continue moving or stop the motion, right? That, that's right. And so knowing where your arm is in space, it's a constant update. And if that update has a one second lag, it doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that. You know, I hadn't really thought about it until now, but, you know, in the computer programming world, you say, do this, like go here and it does it. it it's not a, it's not a range of things necessarily. It's like working with windows with a, a, a two second delay instead of 32 milliseconds, yeah. right? It doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work so well. <laughs> and you said evolutionarily, um, which I'm fine with as far as microevolution. Uh-oh. <laughs> Where does God come into this? No. Um, I actually have a statement here, which I think sums up kind of what you've been saying, but then there's there's a, a question at the end I have. Please. Um, it's a mouthful. I'll try to get through <laughs> Go it. Go for it. Uh, the nervous system exhibits, exhibits an extraordinary capacity for plasticity, ranging from neuronal repair to information acquisition to, and storage. To identify the cellular and network level mechanisms that confer these capabilities, your laboratory combines intracellular, electrophysiological, and computational approaches to investigate neuronal plasticity in two simple model systems. And those systems are what? And can you break that down for dummies like me? I, I couldn't have said that better myself. Well, wait, I did say that. I did say that. <laughs> yes, you did say that. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed because th that means I'm clearly not updating my web page. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know what? It could be my research. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's using Windows 98. <laughs> so I wish. <laughs> you know, th th this actually does speak to evolutionary issues, but mm -hmm. the neurons that don't take offense, the neurons you have in your brain are fundamentally very much the same as the neurons in a sea slug brain. Right. So we can study them in certain ways more readily. That's worse than monkeys. Yeah, you betcha, dude. <laughs> Wait, so so we're talking about um, aplasia? That's and, correct. And uh, hermesendia? Very close. Hermesenda okay. and aplasia. Hermesenda. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, there's a long tradition in biology is to find a model organism. So if you're in genetics, you do fruit flies, right? Right. Because... It, for people, you got a 20-year cycle of generations. Mm -hmm. uh, you got tenure in five years, you lose, right? It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and for neurophysiology, that is studying the um, electrical communication of neurons, see organisms with very large neurons and identifiable neurons and simple nervous systems have been the model systems of choice. So you can put your recording devices in a very big neuron without killing it. In the early days, in the 1950s, these guys over in England, Hodgkin and Huxley, found the giant squid axon. And the axon, again, is the biological wire. And it wasn't the axon from a giant squid. It was a giant axon. Okay? So go back to the point that I raised earlier, that the bigger the wire is, the more current it can carry, mm -hmm. and hence the signal will transmit quickly. Mm -hmm. So squids have an escape reflex. Right. And they flick away, and they scoot away, and they live. And if that reflex is slow, they die. Right, yeah. 
So if you look in, in the squid, the, the size of one of these fibers is, is a millimeter, right? So that's visible with a naked eye. Yeah, sure. that's, that's, that's big. That's, big, that's yeah. super big. And you compared with a brain cell in our brains would be about 10 microns. Yeah, so that's that would m- be tours monstrous. Of, of magnitude smaller. A mm-hmm. hair is about 100 microns. Wow. So a tenth of a hair. So putting a device inside a 10 micron neuron and keeping it alive without killing it is a technical challenge that they didn't have an answer to in the 1950s. We do today, but not then. <laughs> yeah. So the early studies. Did they on, have an answer in the eighties? Uh, yeah, we started to be able okay. to do that, yeah, I mean, uh, but it was hard. Seems like, yeah, way, yeah, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's gotten easier and easier. So now people to some extent don't need to study those model organisms for that particular reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, long story short, um, because they have simple nervous systems and because they have big identifiable neurons, if you want to tackle a complex problem, you find a prep, what we call a preparation, a, a model system where you can examine that particular feature, sometimes in an exaggerated form, but in a simplified way, but in a way that you hope will then extrapolate to more complex systems where you just can't look at it. So in those days, the thing I started off being interested in was learning and memory. That is how our brains actually are modified by experience. Because if you think about it, something has to change in our bodies in order for us to learn. And one neuron might talk to another neuron. The connection between neuron one and neuron two is called a synapse. And although there are a variety of possible means by which neurons could store information, the most straightforward ways include increasing the signal that neuron one sends to neuron number two. So neuron two now gets a more important message and it's, doing more of what it would do, but more powerfully. Or neuron number two might be more receptive. It might have a better microphone to receive a message. And I spent a lot of time um, trying to understand the different parts uh, and different roles of the brain in learning and memory, and an interesting and important understanding of that, which I contributed to, but certainly was part of a very large network of scientists working on, is that our brains don't store information all in one place. So we store different types of information in different circuits that are responsible for different things. So cerebellum might be responsible for certain motor responses. And amygdala, which is a brain area involved in emotional responding, Mm -hmm. might store information about emotional content. And other parts of our brain might store conscious awareness of that. And you might think they're all together because in a normal intact brain, we have that experience. We're scared of something or we like it and we make a response to it and we have an intellectual understanding of it and they all work together. But we know that sense of unity is a fiction and that in fact, emotional components can exist independently of intellectual understanding. And that has huge implications. We might come back to that. Yes, I think we will. But but long story short, um, to understand what happens between even – um, say the ear and an eye blink for a simple task involves hundreds of synapses and thousands, if not millions or billions of neurons. And truly to understand tracking from the ear to the eye is, is a big challenge. So if you pick a very, very simple organism like these sea slugs, then you can reduce that challenge because you it's by virtue of what other people have done, can record from a neuron that's known to be a sensory neuron, and that responds to a touch. And you can record from a neuron that's known to be a motor neuron, which is what generates the behavior. And there's one synapse between them. So you don't have to like look very far to be looking to see what goes on, right? Yeah. And then you can, very importantly, 
make a very strong inference of what the consequence is functionally of that synapse getting stronger. Mm. And so it's, it's rather easy for uh, someone to get a golden fleece award for studying something like how a sea slug learns. Right. Mm -hmm. And what that misses when you characterize or caricature science that way is the commonality of DNA, the commonality of electrical channels and neurons that allow us to extrapolate from one organism to another. So, of course, we're not trying to understand reading in sea slugs, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's right. a odd model for that. Yeah. But Jesus, to understand... a giant spider over here. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, a model system! <laughs> it's not even very big. <laughs> Are you kidding? It had a cat in its mouth. Jesus! Look, I stepped on it twice and it's still fucking moving. That's yeah, carpet. Look at it. Uh, anyway, but I was going to say slugs, Sorry. but still slugs are the same kind. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, come <yeah>, on, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, probably the evolutionary difference between slugs I like and that his spiders. response was a question. Like, can you clarify? Like, yes, we all want that. That's exactly what we need. It's Poe's working once again, you know? <laughs> you know, I never really... <clears throat> thought about that stuff much because I always see articles where people always complain and it's usually coming from the ultra conservative right where it's like why are we spending 10 million dollars studying a fucking sea slug that's a waste of money this is all a waste of money why are we studying this why are we studying that it's a waste of money but then you break it down into that context like that well we're if I study that it makes it easier for me to be able to make this yeah. improvement in your life mm -hmm. yeah but I think well, that's what people I mean I think a large majority of the populace doesn't understand that just because you're studying a sea slug so. doesn't mean you're studying a, a sea slug just to study that <laughs> yeah, particular you're, you're organism. Looking, you're looking for ways in which you can apply the things that you learn to other things. Yes. Right. And, Very and, few geneticists that I know are truly interested in curing Drosophila diseases. I could be wrong on that. But, you know, <laughs> it's a model right. system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that, that kind of speaks to the, the scientific illiteracy that, that, that we have here. We and have scientific literature. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably a better thing to say. Yeah. I mean, it, it speaks to, it speaks to the ignorance that people have uh, as far as science is concerned and, and discovery and research where they have no idea how any of the things that are being studied could be applied to anything else. They see that people are studying sea slugs and go, why the fuck do I need to know about sea slugs? How's that going to help me? Mm. They, they, you know, they don't stop for a second to think about all of the possible implications of the research and what can be discovered as far as it can be applied to anything else besides a sea slug. A whole bunch of stuff embedded in that very cogent statement. And, and one of them is what is the level of education mm -hmm. in the United States? It's no lie that about yearly NSF conducts a poll and it asks people, does the earth revolve around oh. the sun? Or does the science revolve? The oh, I'm sorry. National, National Science Foundation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the pollster doesn't matter. The, the question matters, right? right? right. And, matters, and, yeah. and what matters is a quarter of Americans get this answer wrong. Yeah. Right? I mean, yep. you would think you would suck this up by being alive in, in, in elementary <laughs> school. And, and there was a wonderful story told by one of the speakers whose name I, I regret I've forgotten. He was at the plug here. American Atheist <laughs> Convention last year in Salt Lake City. And he had um, been invited. He had been had done very well on the Survivor Show. Mm -hmm. And he had come from um, uh, Indonesia, I believe, and considered himself lucky to come to these presumably developed countries right. to get a better education. Yes, And he was confronted with this very stark reality that on the one hand – 
we have some of the greatest educational system products mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. and we have fantastic research and we have a very high level of understanding. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have 25% of the people that haven't figured out what Galileo knew. Yep. Yep. And and we have 40% – uh-oh, now my, my, my vein is going to start throbbing. 40% <laughs> of Americans who believe that the earth is 6,000 years old yep. and that people are invented de novo without any descendants from other mm-hmm. species. And, mm-hmm. and so, so think about that. I often get accused – of creating straw men that, you know, painting this picture that's a ridiculous caricature of religious beliefs. Well, you know, even if you don't get into the issue of the moderates, 42% of Americans is a lot of straw, right? Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, that, that's yeah, yeah. not a minor population that right. you have to address. Right. Yeah. The other thing that gets me going, and this really speaks to the heart of, of how religion poisons everything, is that the moderate theists claim that they believe in evolution, but it's basically a my shit don't stink argument, right? Mm -hmm. Because some 30% of them say, oh, yeah, I I believe in evolution in the sense that people have been around for more than 6,000 years, but it was God-guided evolution. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay? And and, and think about that for a moment. It's it's the intellectual equivalent of someone saying, yes, I, I do believe lightning exists, but God is throwing lightning bolts yeah. down to strike the wicked. <laughs> yeah, and Thor. saying this with a straight face, right? Yeah. right, As if it should and, be given respect. Well, and, and as if they are the enlightened ones. Exactly <laughs> so, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, so, so let that think in, sink in for just a minute. If, if, it, if it really were lightning bolts, right, they, they would understand why they should be mocked. But because yeah. it's people and it's so – it's about us and our special role in the universe – then it's it's sacred and and it's not not appropriate to make it risible or to point out that it already is risible. <laughs> well, why why are there still monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> right, this is what you get. Yeah. Um, here's another little bit of that apparently outdated article. <laughs> I'm sure it's my fault. Um. So you develop biologically realistic computational models to determine how subcellular modifications produce changes expressed at the level of individual neurons at the level of the entire neural network and ultimately in behavior. So when will your slug army be ready? <laughs> Unfortunately, I moved to Utah, you know, and like the, 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 the sea slug thing is just not yeah. working out. Um, but how do you affect behavior is what I'm wondering. Uh, again, um, you, you pick a simple model system, right? So let's go to Pavlov's dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pavlov won two Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. Two. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Just by itself. But what's also cool is how he won the second one. Right? What was he before? If anybody, anybody here know? I don't know. He was a gastric physiologist. Oh, okay. So he, that was his bread and butter, if you will, was studying the, the, um, you know, the, the GI tract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he found that, you know, and so what do you do when you study the GI tract? You have food and you have animals, right? So he's got all these animals and they're being fed. And what he realized or what his, his team realized was that as people started to approach the animals to do their feeding – Right, they were already salivating, which was mucking up 
his measurements. Oh, right. So it was an accidental observation. We were talking earlier about so much of science is an accident. Yeah, but still science, measure, yeah. right? But but what's key is he said, "Oh my gosh," and and this also speaks to the wonder of of scientific inquiry and curiosity. Mm-hmm. The gastric thing is is pretty important, right? We got to eat to live, so that's not irrelevant. But oh my gosh, the fact that we have psychic gastric release is like, oh my gosh, now we can start understanding what the brain does. Mm. So he started exploring that. And if you really look at the best scientists, instead of being threatened by new advances, they go, what a wonderful opportunity to figure out something I never knew. So I did have the pleasure to work with a Nobel scientist on on a sea slug. um, And he was just (laughs) like that, which is... How cool, uh, something I didn't know. Yeah, Yeah, like, oh... Absolutely. I'm not threatened by this. This yeah. is great that right. I'm ignorant. Yeah. An opportunity yeah. to learn. Something right. unexpected has happened. Why? Yeah. Right. Um, and and what, what a wonderful approach to life and what an yeah. antithesis it is <laughs> to say, oh, uh, you should doubt your doubts before you doubt. Yes. Your, you should shut your ah. brain down <sighs> when we're confronted with something that might challenge the way you're thinking. And that's why science and religion are inherently incompatible, yeah. is, mm-hmm. is what do you do? In case you circle the wagons and make sure that there's no threats that can get through to disrupt your belief system in the other, you go, let's good look for ways that can destroy what we currently understand or at least advance it, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and this really is true. What we try to do in science is to prove ourselves wrong. In, in conventional thought in, in, in among the populace, it's trying to prove your hypothesis. Mm. But actually, that's just the reverse, what we do. Doing we a, try to disprove uh, it. And if we can't, we go, so far, it's withstood a really good test. It's the best we got. So to put that in sort of casual language, everybody has probably heard of control experiments. Right. right? Yeah. What is a control experiment? A control experiment is the attempt to prove your pet hypothesis wrong. So here's what might happen with if my hypothesis is true. But you know what else? Here's an alternative explanation that might account for the same result. So I'll include that to see if that works better or as well. And let's include this other possibility and another possibility. And if at the end of the day, you've got all of these other possibilities and none of them worked out, you can say, well, so far, this is the best we got. And if you get 10,000 experiments doing the same thing in different ways, and this is huge convergence that no answer seems to be any better, mm-hmm. then you're... It's got to be the right answer. Well, almost. It's got to be 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
Um, while we're on this topic, can you explain what a scientific theory is? Yes, I can. Please do. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, the one word explanation is just that, explanation. So a theory is an explanation. Mm-hmm. And it's an explanation that in scientific lingo typically refers to a very well-documented explanation that ties together vast realms of different evidence in a cohesive and convincing way. So and there's that, an that important also distinction. multiple disciplines, right? Correct. Correct. Thank you for that clarification and expansion. And, and in, in common use, sometimes in, in the populace, uh, theory and hypothesis can be used interchangeably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, that's true in theory, but not in practice, right? right? So language is fluid. And what's unfortunate, of course, is then people either deliberately or accidentally then use those two very different meanings. So in the Cobb uh, County, Georgia case, for example, where they put the book stickers that ultimately were challenged, is that evolution is, quote, just a just theory. Just a theory. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's kind of like, um, you know, gravity is yeah. also just a theory. Right. Or and germ theory of disease or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the other mistake that often happens is people think that a theory is on a hierarchy, it's not quite yet fact, and it's not even law. Okay, mm-hmm. and and so those, it is not the case that those are a hierarchy. Those are um, organized in a kind of parallel way. So a fact is an observation or interpretation that is so likely to be correct that, for all practical purposes, we will accept that it is. A theory is an explanation that ties things together, and a law is a description. So there's a law of gravity that says how quickly things accelerate and what the relationship okay. is between mass and acceleration, right? And that's a law. That's a description. Mm-hmm. Here's the ironic thing. And that's mathematical mostly, right? Yeah. It, it often is, right? Okay. Because the math is the language that is the most precise. Mm-hmm. And so many things can be fit into that kind of um, framework. And then you know you've, you've eliminated a lot of wiggle room because of the ambiguity of our, our language. Sure, sure. Right? But, but here's what happens is people then get, well, you know, evolution is not very far along yet because it's not yet a fact or it's not yet a law. Mm-hmm. Here's the irony. Everybody would accept that gravity is a fact. Everybody would yeah. accept the law of gravity. But you know what? We actually don't have a theory of gravity. The right. irony is our right. theory of evolution is way more developed hmm. than yeah. our theory of gravity. And yeah. you don't see people going around putting stickers in physics books going, gravity, uh, it's not theory. even a theory yet. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's when intelligent you... falling. It is interesting when it gets to God. Um, you know, and I think – I. Uh, I hope this is correct, but I, I think it was Tracy Harris on the Atheist Experience that was saying that um, nobody would have a problem at all in saying that leprechauns don't exist. Yeah. And this is the same amount of evidence we have for God, but yet there's this massive amount. They get really upset when yeah, you say Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. There's this massive amount of resistance to it. I, I, uh, I, I really buy into that. The analogy I, I sometimes use is – a Godzilla, just for the alliteration, right? Oh, and yeah. We can, we can reject the Godzilla hypothesis with much the same certainty that we reject the God hypothesis or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And nobody gets upset when you say, you know, Godzilla doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. 
And yet you say, I might because I'm a super nerd. There you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Or you can even take an an ancient god saying, well, Odin doesn't exist. He's made up or or Thor or anybody to say. Uh, Odin absolutely exists. That's Sarah's son. (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's even even a greater problem, I think, um, being a layperson. Just just my own observation. When you talk about leprechauns, Godzilla, Bigfoot, whatever, that people don't have a problem saying that they don't exist, are still taxonomically, biologically more possible than a supernatural omnimax being. Yeah, because they could exists. physically be touched it's and grabbed possible. and felt and tested yeah. and right? played with. Very small, small, small. You don't have to break the law of physics to have a Godzilla. Yes, in right. quite the okay. same way. Yeah, yeah. Said, maybe genetics. Much better, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> that lizard was that big. Yes. Well, uh, in yeah, fact, what if it was body, a relative of the dinosaurs? Form wouldn't work, right? Because actually, no, you do have to scale, right? There's yeah. A reason elephants have thick legs, and so you couldn't, you couldn't, you can't take a, a lizard and just scale up. But but it's much closer. And you need much less deviation, whereas some of the things that God would have to do, or truly our understanding of physics, would not apply. And and the same thing holds true for after death, and maybe we'll get to you know experiences. And so afterlife. you're a fat Godzilla proponent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, assuming he's related to the dinosaurs somehow, maybe possible. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, stegosaur-like plates and tyrannosaur-like body form I, exactly it, so. it's it's still physically possible mm-hmm. that's right you missiles defeating the armor there's, there's no evidence the to be, yes yeah there's no evidence I don't know, maybe those did, but. maybe those eye eye, eye lasers might right, the be eye, yeah right and the flames <laughs> the, out the, the mouth fire breathing yeah. right then we gotta find mothra <laughs> <laughs> yeah an insect that large would be pretty weird I they think eat. an exoskeleton would support that yeah imagine exactly the so. the strength of the silk from that moth well, yeah, we've, sweet. I mean, we have we have evidence of very very large insects. Yeah, in the past, n- nothing nothing the size of a yeah, city nothing street. the size of Mothra for <laughs> I sure. Think, I but. think the centipede, right, in the Carboniferous was the largest at about six to ten feet. I think that's the biggest you Jesus, get. Jesus, that's huge. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, that would I just know that they have yeah, very <laughs> very large insects. I think I, that's the biggest. Yeah. The dragonflies were like the size of seagulls. Yeah, but. Beyond I thought that, there was. We're, we're talking about something yeah. the size of a building. Yeah, I thought there was yeah, some sort of correlation between the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere yeah, and the exactly, size of uh, exactly. insects and, and creatures. Yeah, that's why I said the Carboniferous. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. As far True. as I know, we have a scientist here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that kind of scientist. <laughs> not that that's his area of expertise, but. Um, but I, I would like to get back into this, unless you guys had another. Well, we can no, talk. I'm having a good time here. We got a little, we got a little science right there. If you want, oh to yeah, talk hit, about on, hit on reptile science. guy. <laughs> yeah, dude, he does look like that. Is the worst picture? Like, I, I there are no good pictures. Rick so. Scott is not the most <laughs> photogenic person in the world, right? But that is Jesus. And of course, that's, that's an, scary. An article slamming him isn't I mean, going to use brain. a good oh. photo of him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think he's in church right there. Yeah, look, we got a freaking. We got a we got a iguana and a turtle over there. <laughs> Good point, Mitch McConnell. I always I always love John Stewart. So every time he talks about him, have you seen that? Uh, yep, yep. Uh, yep. I'm bringing home my baby bumblebee. 
<laughs> Papa would be so proud. <laughs> so this this headline is Florida Governor Rick Scott bans official uh, bans officials from using the terms climate change and global warming, as if that's something that he can actually do. But the but the uh, story begins. If you read this headline, then had to make sure that you weren't reading something from the Onion. I wouldn't have blamed you. Republican antics have reached such ridiculous levels that nowadays it's becoming increasingly increasingly difficult to tell whether something is satire or if it's something that someone on the right side of the aisle actually said or did, which is entirely true. There's yeah, so much crazy again. stuff coming out. Uh, it continues that it seems that in Florida, a state a state that's easily one of the most at risk if our sea rise do if our seas rise due to climate change. Governor Rick Scott has forbidden state officials from using the terms climate change or global warming. Uh, Florida is also the most at risk for right-wing crazy assholes. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And flooding. Yeah, well, flooding yeah. That, but I, I mean, well, and Rick Scott is just, he's terrible. He's an awful, awful person. So uh, it goes on to say, quote, we were told not to use the terms climate change, global warming, or sustainability, says Christopher Byrd, who served as an attorney for the Department of Environmental Protection from 2018 to 2013, told FCIR. I'm not sure what that is. Um, that message was communicated to me and my colleagues by our superiors in the Office of General Counsel. First, I don't have any idea how he thinks he can get away with telling people what they can or cannot say. Yeah. That's that's pretty fucking crazy. I would imagine that the First Amendment would have something to say about that. Do do they know how to read in Florida though? I mean, hmm. isn't ignorance an excuse? That's there <laughs> you know Florida I don't think is too far behind Texas as far as their backward I think fucking, they're worse. You think? Yeah, because we don't have any listeners. <laughs> I don't think so. We have some in Texas. Texas is our third largest. Yeah. No, but I, but I, I honestly I think Texas is better for sure. Yeah. Austin, I Austin area Austin is the only good thing. It's yeah. pretty decent and Florida well, it's, the, it's the highly populated urban areas that of course Yeah, are, but Florida Florida has three football teams. They have urban areas. Yeah. But they have nobody above a 65 IQ, which is weird, and probably why they have three football teams. I like football, but I understand. <laughs> so the story continues. Another individual who worked for DEP said they were not allowed to discuss anything that was not a true fact. Now, that there, I'm wondering if we're going back to only what, false facts. Uh, yeah, only what, what Dr. Gregory was just talking about, saying, well, it's only 99.9% true or or if possible. So that's not 100%. So it's not a true fact. Yeah, so, that's what they're going back so to. So who is determining what these facts are? Yeah, but is anyone... I mean, who's who's saying that climate change is is not happening? Climate change deniers. I, 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 I James think, Inhofe springs to mind. Right. Well, even most people that yeah, deny... But, they don't deny climate change. They're, they're human... Uh, influence climate change. Yeah, I think they're, is what they're, is they're talking about anthropocentric. Well, yeah, well, well and, and, the, and there change, are two but, levels of climate change deniers, right? There, there are climate change deniers who don't say that there's any problem at all. That all of the science that people point to to say that no, this is happening, 
is made up or misinterpreted or people are, are lying about or it God or they're won't destroy the world again. They're they're somehow shills for some environmental something versus, you know, the oil companies that spend millions of dollars on this. Or you have people who say, sure, climate change may be happening, but it's not man-made climate yeah. change. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as a consequence of anything that man is doing here on the planet Earth. It's, you know, the the Earth and, and our solar system and 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 the sun go through go through different changes and it's cyclical and we're just we just happen to be in a warming cycle. Um that's coming way is, too fast. This is not your area, <laughs> I understand. May I ask your personal opinion, Dr. Clark? Sure. Four four points. I'm all ready to roll yep. here. Let's do it. Okay. So number one, uh what are the tie ins with religion? And number two, mm-hmm. what are the tie ins with religion? <laughs> yes. First one is if you sincerely believe as a substantial number of Americans do, that Jesus is coming back in the next hundred years, mm-hmm. or few, yeah, or less probably. But then, yeah. yeah, actually, the figure is typically within the generation. Yep. Yeah, uh, right. yeah, and it has been for two thousand years. Then, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the the um, the wandering Jew was reportedly sighted in Salt Lake City in the 1800s. We'll get back to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> These footprints, mine, 15 years ago. <laughs> well, you know, the story was he was going to return in the lifetime of his followers. There's one guy, yeah. the wandering Jew, who has been wandering for the last oh, 2,000 right, right. years, and he was spotted in Salt Lake. The purportedly <sighs> magical wandering Jew. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> right, right. So who cares about climate change if the world's coming to an end and we're sure, all going to yeah. be raptured? Yeah, sure. Right? And, and, yep. and that actually is a very important example of how religious belief can interfere with real world, very disastrous consequences. Mm-hmm. How important is this? The National Center for Science Education used to have as its almost sole target re educating the public or educating for the first time about yep. evolution. And they've been wonderful. They've played super key roles in a variety of cases and uh, Dover versus Kitzman, the, the mm-hmm. intelligent design case in Pennsylvania, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and on and on, and they have felt it appropriate to expand their charge to address these climate issues because the same sorts of techniques that used to be used uh. for evolution are being used here in denying climate changes. The other things that are sort of relevant speak to some of the themes we've brought up before is you can almost always find one outlier in a population of 10,000, mm-hmm. right? And, and one of the problems with the media, and they're beginning to recognize this, is that in the interest of representing both sides, which is a, a valid goal and a meritorious Sometimes, approach, I mean, it can be, unless the other side is just completely fucking wacky. Well, and, and, and also what gets lost is if it's not clearly communicated in the media – that this is the view of one person in a in a hundred or a thousand, mm-hmm. and this is the view of the other nine hundred and ninety nine. Right. Then the media does not accurately portray what's really going on. Right. And this because, is also what happens. Right. Because most people walk away from that believing that this yeah, is a fifty fifty. Yeah, argument. exactly. So, understandably, right. Right. and if you go down to the legislature, and I encourage anybody who has an interest in in our um, state's affairs to to go down and do that, you'll often mm-hmm. go to a Senate hearing, and they will ask for a spokesperson. From each side. Okay, so I was down there when Chris Butters was pushing his divine design bill. Oh, what an okay. I'm so glad that's, he's that's, a, that's yeah. a long story, but and a very important one to me. That's one of the reasons I actually became more outspoken instead of just doing my thing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the way it was done, is one person, right, the room was packed. And to their credit, profs from BYU were coming up. 
profs from all over were coming up. People were coming, you know, it was like one side was full and then there was Chris Butters and this one guy who traveled with him all the time. And they got, you know, they got equal time, right? They yeah. got equal time. And that's yeah. just not appropriate. No. The, the other thing that cracks me up is um, this notion that there's a conspiracy of scientists. Oh, yeah. Right? This yeah. cabal that's keeping things quiet. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Where do you get your fame in science? You get your fame in science by toppling the icon of what's known. Right. You, by proving something wrong, by opening something up. So what do scientists do? If you've ever been to a scientific meeting, what they try to do is like attack each other's ideas. It's You think uh, you think the ARU chat room Facebook page is bad, man. You should go to a scientific convention, right? Uh, and, and so the notion that 999 out of 1,000 scientists would conspire to increase their chances of getting this small, minuscule – fraction of NIH, National Institute of, of Health, or NSF, National Science Foundation, money to study climate change, compared with yeah. the super big bucks that the oil industry has, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, 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 is absurd on its face. You can't get two scientists to agree on anything unless there's like <laughs> overwhelming evidence and they would just be laughed for trying to disagree with it. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to get two atheists to agree on much of anything. I don't agree with that, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) It's like totally wrong analogy. (laughs) But yeah, you're absolutely right. John Oliver uh, on one of his shows for last week tonight, I think is the name of his show on HBO. Yeah. He he did a special segment on – climate change and and the science behind it and those representing who, both sides yeah and yeah. those who don't believe in in global climate change and and he said you know there's there's this false uh there's this false representation of people who you know the media in its rush to present both sides of the story always presents somebody who believes in global climate change and somebody who denies that it's happening and people walk away with this false with this false idea that it's a 50, 50 exchange that, you know, the, the science isn't in, we don't really know for sure that, you know, half of people think one way, half of the other don't. And he said, you know, when you look at the statistics of actual climate scientists who study this versus people who are denying it, it's like nine, you know, nine to one or, or, or or higher and way higher. And and so he brought out you know all of the, he brought out this huge group of people to say if we if we want to if we want this. to actually represent the views you know if we want to actually represent the numbers on either side here's what you know the 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 people who are saying that their the climate change is happening and it is a problem and it is man made here's the number of people who do that versus this one fucking crazy guy over here yeah, I think he had actually I think he brought out two climate change deniers in ninety eight. Supporters of climate change. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was wonderful. I, I thought that was a great segment. And, and, it, and it kills me that, that so often you do see in the media that they try to present both sides of the story, but inevitably people walk away with this false notion that, that it is a 50-50 divide, and it's not. Or the whole teach the controversy. Right. Which is, there's no controversy. There's well, no scientific controversy. No, yeah, no scientific controversy. Yeah, no scientific yeah. controversy. And it's always presented, at least here in the United States, as you know, either evolution is true or or God made creation. And and they try to tell the and they try to make this presentation as, you know, teach the controversy where science says one thing but religious people say another. Completely, you know, they, they set up this false dichotomy where it's just science or just people 
of one specific Abrahamic tradition, which is in the United States, generally Christianity, which, which gave rise to the whole Pastafarian movement and belief in, or not necessarily belief, but the, the story of the flying spaghetti monster. When, you know, you, you had, you had schools trying to, trying to push this, this notion that, you know, evolution wasn't proven at all. So they needed to quote, teach the pro teach the controversy and wanted to also have their students learn about God guided evolution or not even evolution, but just creationism in general. And, you know, the, the, the guy who started the, the Pastafarian movement and, and, and the flying spaghetti monster was like, if you want to teach the controversy, let's bring in all of them. You know, I personally believe that there's a, there's a giant floating pasta monster and he created this whole this whole world around it and said if you want to teach the controversy then you need to then you need to teach all of them let's teach all of these alternative alternative uh explanations for how we came to be here one of the sad things about that and how willing so many people were to lie and i use that word cautiously but in this case appropriately if you're aware of the intelligent design movement, it was a deliberate attempt to mm-hmm. replace the word creationism with intelligent design without yeah. really yep. changing the ideas. Absolutely. It's a way well, to just yep. sneak it in. And Barbara Forrest um, got a hold of some of the earlier versions of the book, which was the centerpiece of the trial in the sense that it triggered off the book that was going to be put into the schools. It was of pandas and people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the early editions, it literally was creationism. Right, and th- there was a global search and replace attempted mm-hmm. in which the words creationism were replaced with intelligent design. Yeah, they presented those documents at trial. Yeah, and and there were some funny ones too because there was one case where um, the creationism and intelligent design replacement didn't work perfectly well, so the words the two words were merged. Right? <laughs> so it was something like creation intelligent designism. Right? Yeah. And then, oh look, it's the missing link. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Their search and replace wasn't very good. It wasn't done very well. But that whole missing link argument is really quite instructive because um, one of the ironies is, let's say you have A and you have C, and so you have a missing link bink. Right. Mm-hmm. You find B, and what happens? Right. If you move the goalposts and you're just into word weaseling, yep. you now have two missing links. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. A and a half and B and a half. Yeah. yeah. So like like this is a lose yeah. lose game, right? The more you find, the more is left unexplained, and that's why, right. you know, not even in an epistemological sense or the theory of knowledge sense, but just in a practical sense, certain approaches are just worthless. Right. In, in 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 terms of increasing our understanding of knowledge, you can always say there's one more thing less that's not yet understood. Yeah. Right? You can always say God did it, but that's that's an end of story explanation that provides no new information. And and if you're going to be um, you know willing to take that to its extreme, you can always evoke it. And that's really why there's this this huge. Um, but false controversy about whether alternative explanations can be disproven, right? If you took them at face value and they had strong predictions, yes, you can disprove things like intelligent design or faith healing, right? But that's not what happens. What happens is the classical 
Sagan's Dragon in his garage, mm-hmm. right? Someone makes a claim and you go, well, I could disprove that. I could go and open your garage door and there's right. no dragon there. And they go, oh, move the goalpost. It's, it's an invisible, invisible dragon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, no problem. I'll get out the can of spray paint. You know, oh, it's an invisible dragon that doesn't have a body. It's incorporeal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and as long as you can keep evoking, invoking the supernatural mm-hmm. and come up with yet another excuse. Cause if it's an omnipotent being, it can do anything. It can never add to our understanding, right? You just keep, right. Um, just keep moving those goalposts. I, I, for one, am, uh, I think I'm, I'm a sample set of one, but still a good, ex- <laughs> a good example of why there's no loving God. Who who, who does, would create something like that? Well, I mean, there's yeah. that. There, there is, there's that. There's the obvious physical, but but what lo- what kind of a loving mankind? What kind of a loving being creates an Irishman with a small bladder? <laughs> That's just bad design. <laughs> well, when we were we were talking uh, pre podcast um, about how religion poisons everything, and there's so many things that that happen within religious indoctrination and religious teachings that, you know, for somebody who, who is, who was raised in that their entire life and steeped in it and, and has never even given it a thought to question some of the teachings that they've had, they can, they can lead their lives for several years without ever questioning any of the things that they've, that they've uh, been taught before, or even that they may question some of the things, but not all of the things. And and Doctor Clark reminded me that uh, I think it was just yesterday that Danielle Moscato had had posted something about how religion poisons everything, and and that you know she she made a comment on, on a thread that she had made where she said that you know she tagged me in it and said that uh, she could remember seeing something about me posting a while back that you know. Until I was much, much older in life, you know, way past when I should have realized it, that I held this belief that males have one fewer rib than females. And that was because I was taught that in Sunday school when I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and had never even thought to question it at all. It, It had never even occurred to me, even, you know, several years into being a self-identified atheist, this was not something that I had ever questioned at all. It was something that I had always believed. It was something that I had never had any reason to question at all. And it wasn't until I was in my early to mid-20s that I actually did a little bit of research, and I can't even remember what spurred it or or what made me check into it at all. But it it wasn't until I was in my early to mid-20s that I did any checking into it to find out that no, actually, we, males we and females the have the same number of ribs. It's not that, you know, you can it it and, and and I guess in my mind I always figured that in defense of the beliefs that I had at the time, I would say that even as an atheist I thought, okay, well, males must obviously have one fewer rib and people of religious faith use that as something to point to and say this is proof that God exists and the story of Adam and Eve is true and everything. So it's something that I never even thought to question, right? Mm -hmm. Because I thought, well, they're just adopting this and fitting it into their narrative as evidence to to prove what they already believe, Mm -hmm. which is what we see Ken Ham doing all the Mm -hmm. time. So it's not something that I even ever thought to question. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that, yeah, until I was in my 20s, I thought that men had one fewer rib than women. 
You're a victim of indoctrination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right? As yeah. a child, you're gullible. You know, what? what is the definition of atheism? Well, there's there's lots, of course, and there's the classic one, which actually has to do with God. But I think there's a deeper one that speaks to why religion poisons everything. And um, Ayan Hershey Ali uses this in talking about atheism. And, and half of the quote is very famous, which is that atheism is the only creed that leaves me with no cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. But there's another part of it, a few sentences above, that is equally important and, and not as well, not as often repeated, which is, I had had enough of lying. Mm-hmm. I had had enough of lying. Yep. And so much of religion depends on lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. It's not really these sophisticated arguments that people get into no. on, the, on the interweb that are required. Right? You open the Bible – the first sentence is wrong. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Even a fifth grader knows that no, the earth came about, you know, and they may not know the exact number, but 4.5 billion years and the universe is 14 billion. Uh, no, mm-hmm. they didn't come together. Yeah. You read it and it, and it goes, okay, God created the, 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 the night and the day, day one. Yeah. But the sun doesn't show up till day four, yeah. right? <laughs> right. You know, so that, like a fifth grader, you ask them, well, you know, why is it night? You know, why is it dark at night? And what, you know, yeah. a fifth grader could tell you, right? And, and, and fruit trees are growing on earth, right? right. They're having fruit right. on day three and the sun's still not there yeah. yet, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, Photosynthesis. What, what's the point? The point is that any reasonable person thinking rationally without mm-hmm. any sophisticated education whatsoever would instantly recognize that this is bullshit, right? It does not take a high yeah. level of PhD training. And, and the really pernicious aspect of religion is that, that it teaches us to lie to ourselves. It glorifies and sanctifies our lying to ourselves by saying you just have to accept this nonsense mm-hmm. on faith – Doubt Rather, your doubt. You doubt your you doubts. Yep. Exactly so. And that, if I may bring it full circle, right? Um, people have brought to my attention with some amusement that there's a wonderful website that I, I, I do love. It's a pair of websites, and it's Why Won't God Heal Amputees? Oh, oh created right? by Marshall Brain. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> it, that's pseudo anonymous on the web, but everybody knows who he is. So, um, and he's got a. a, a a companion site called God is Imaginary. And the argument is really simple, but really quite important, which is people who believe in the power of distal intercessory prayer to cure cancer, to stop earthquakes, to save people from drowning, to do all sorts of stuff. Uh, We saw one just the other day, just today posted this voice that's directing people to save this baby, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yep. And so God's intervening all the time to do all of this stuff, but he never, not once, ever will regrow a limb. No, yep. it's, you know, amputees are praying. You bet they're praying. And, 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 yeah, and yeah. you know, the people we've worked with, some of them have been very religious. And, of course, mm-hmm. I don't push that issue with them. It's no, not no, appropriate. Yeah, yeah, right. But what I've really grown to understand is how poignant a loss of a hand is. That is, yeah. it's not like losing, you know, if you get a, um, I don't know, an artificial hip or something, right? It's, you still feel like yourself. Our hands are ways yeah. in which yeah. we interact you can with have the a, You can have a complete knee replacement and not yeah. feel like you're missing yeah, yeah. Your Hands your are knee. very, you know I mean? very it's, intimate to, to humanity. You know, yeah. and, and, and so, so why isn't God healing amputees? And the obvious answer is the companion site. God is imaginary, right? <laughs> yeah. But 
right? The, the mental machinations and gymnastics that people have to go through to come up with explanations to convince themselves, right? And, and so the reality is most of the simple reality checks are, are brain dead simple, right? And so if you want to ask if prayer works, don't try to go and find some really subtle effect on cancer survival yep. in, in a population of 10,000 people and spend a million dollars to doing it. Mm-hmm. If you really believe prayer works, just heal that amputee. Salamanders can regrow limbs. Yeah. Does God love salamanders more? Right. 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 And the interesting thing is the site used – does anybody know this, what the site was originally named? No. Uh-uh. Apparently it was maybe just a little too strong. Was, why does God hate amputees? Uh-huh. Right? Because he has the power well, yep. to heal them. No, that's a perfectly legitimate question. And he's not doing it. Yep. Right? So he doesn't want to. And the thing that gets me thrown off of almost more websites than, than anything <laughs> is citing scripture and saying, this is your belief, but just yep. doing it without the sugar coating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what's another thing? Uh, you know, God, um, nothing happens without the will of the father. Mm-hmm. Very standard Christianity. Very yep. it's straight out of scripture. And yep. that means anything that happened. In fact, I think Jesus said that. Yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's the word of son of God or God well, Jr. or both. Second I mean, being it doesn't God. matter. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not distorting anything, right? I'm just saying this is what he said. So does that mean that, yeah, he wanted this to happen, and their answer yep. has to be – should be yes, yeah, but yeah, the answer yes. is that – you can't ask that. Well, free will, doctor. Ah, there you go. Uh, will we, you plug the cord into my <laughs> laptop? I'm not. I'm not saying. Will you? <laughs> the hand signals going on here, folks. All I can say is, thank goodness for radio. Because if this were TV, these people would be going up to Sing Sing for uh, obscenity violations. Dan was giving me the uh, the ASL signal for let's fuck the universal. <laughs> hey, you want to go have fun times? Was okay with the with the finger. All right. So thinking. Speaking of of fucking, right? <laughs> so I, I got into this uh, interweb argument the other day. So we all know this local case of Sierra Nobold. She was a six-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. She was kidnapped out of her bedroom. Mm. Yeah, she I actually, I actually was, know relatives of the family. Uh, okay, so yeah. um, she, she was raped, she was beaten, she was drowned. And then the potential perpetrator was caught. And what did the police chief say about all of this? Thank God. No? <laughs> oh, although he probably did. He said, divine intervention occurred so that we could finger the perp not to save the girl not to save the girl not only to not save her from being murdered but to save her from being raped yeah to save her from being kidnapped right. from and a horrendous all murder. of the, all of those things god god turned a blind eye to mm-hmm. did nothing did fucking nothing so so well, this wait, is not wait. a novel thought on my part and that's not my point is that i've had this great insight of how how um y- you know this dich- dichotomy is this proof of religion. The amazing thing to me is that the majority of Americans just buy into this, yeah. Yeah. right? It is so self-evident that any one of us, any reasonable person, and Tracy Harris has said this, would mm-hmm. inter- intervene mm-hmm. to stop a, a young person oh, from yeah, being Yeah, that's raped. the difference yeah, between and, me and your God, and, is that if I had the power to stop somebody from raping a child, I would do it. And, right? Chris, and, and, Christopher and, and, Hitchens talked about that, as yes, as, as nasty proud, as he could be sometimes, yeah, right. although eloquent. Yeah, so but he, he talked about that, even with Christ. He was saying, you know, if I had been present, would have been, would have had to have stopped. 
if I if I had seen this nasty torture happening to some some fellow human being. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. But the the point there's two points. One is it tells you what the true character of God is if he existed, right? Which is not something at I least would want in the mind worship, of that police chief, right? Yeah. But the truly amazing thing to me is that people will think this way and not have the aha moment of going, wait a minute, uh, the. God, I'm worshiping. Just let that happen, yep. and I'm still saying that's the right thing to do. So I got and this it's and... happening right now to somebody else. That's right. And uh. and <laughs> that police chief is also admitting his complete ineptitude on on in his job and in training his his subordinates. Yeah. To do their jobs. We I wouldn't know. have been able to do it if it weren't for God. Fuck all of the training that we've gone through. Yeah, well, yeah. Right. Well, fuck Post. Just sit at home and pray. <laughs> yeah. But you know that doesn't work. Oh, right. I'm getting... Uh, dude, you know what? <laughs> this, I, I didn't think I was going to happen tonight. I, but this but they fucking... They know it. That's they right. know it. Somewhere right. in themselves, they know that that shit doesn't work. That's why they go to training. And, yeah. and, and that's also why they go to the doc. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right? why they go searching and out. And God we they, trust, except if I'm sick... Right? Who are the people that actually truly show their belief? Yeah, they're the ones with the dead kids. Yeah. Right? How, no. how quickly do people abandon their religious belief and head to the fucking emergency room? Yeah, when we, they break you know, an arm. We've talked about that too. Yeah, they throw faith right out the window and head to a science center. Yeah, soon as someone's broke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, so the so the quote from Tracy Harris is: "You either have a God who sends child rapists to rape children, or you have a God who simply watches it and says, eh, when you're done, I'm going to punish you.'" If I could stop a person from raping a child, I would. That's the difference between me and your God. Yep. But God is always right. And so we were t- you were talking earlier about if you start from that premise, then you have to shoehorn everything into a convoluted mess to have it make sense. And, mm-hmm. and nobody can, can really do it that convoluted, so they just shut down mentally. Mm-hmm. And refuse to think, and that's why religion poisons everything. Is it? It causes people to literally, well, no, metaphorically, give themselves frontal lobotomies uh-huh. to avoid thinking about the obvious. And the same thing is true with why won't God heal amputees? This is not a, yeah. a complicated experiment. Everybody no. in the world opens their eyes and sees that not a single one of those people is helped by prayer. Well, but I mean, even 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 an uneducated dummy like me can look at that quote and say. Well, Tracy Harris is more moral than the than the God she's speaking of. Right. This is the God I see every day, mm-hmm. and we all see every day. Uh, so, so it, it really doesn't take that much. He's mysterious. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's well a, you're right, Dan. <laughs> but I think I think I think the real problem is what uh, Doctor Clark was talking about was is that you start with the premise that you know his his desires are greater than we can understand or you know he's beyond our comprehension or you know everything he does is good and all that and so they they can sort of whitewash it you know that well yeah that's bad but you know it could be worse or we're talking about eternity and they'll get theirs and then these people will be rewarded and so <laughs> you know on. i thought but- about that the <laughs> other day when people say you know well god will judge you in the end okay fine He'll judge me in the end. Until then, shut the fuck up and leave me alone. Exactly. Like, either he's going to judge me at the end or he's going to judge me throughout my life. Either way, what the fuck business is it of yours to tell me how to live my life? If your God is all-powerful and is going to judge me in the end, then fucking let him do mm -hmm. it and leave me the fuck alone. I think we talked about that. You know, because it's like, why why do you even have need of missionaries at all? Yeah. Like, what, what, what are you doing? 
right? Like, why are you sending people out to try to change other people's minds? Like, well, is, right. is, it, isn't your God Omnimax? Like, what what the fuck is he doing? Well, yeah, it's that, it's that whole thing of, of you know, I, I've seen it represented in memes before where you have a missionary going and talking to, you know, an Inuit out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And and presenting the right. idea of Jesus Christ to them and saying, you know, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you believe in him, you can obtain heaven and whatever. If you deny him, then you'll go to hell. And the and the Inuit or or whomever is, is represented in this in this <laughs> meme says, so I could have just gone to heaven had you not told me anything about this before. Well, sure. Then why the fuck are you talking to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's get back to why Doctor Clark is better than God. Um, how are, what are, what are you working on for amputees at this point? <laughs> I briefly described that before. So the basic idea is to take a, an advanced prosthetic limb and plug it into the nervous system. So the person can move it by just thinking about it. And so they can also feel it, uh, as with, with cutaneous or touch and the sense of movement and, and thus restore a sense of self. We're also working on related issues. If you imagine them on a spinal cord injury. I was just going to ask you about yeah. this, actually. Then some of the same technology can apply. Here, we would reverse the approach. You might have still these electrodes invented by my colleague Richard Norman at the University of Utah talking to these sets of individual wires, these wire bundles coming down, say, the leg or the arm. Mm -hmm. And now, if you activate those wires that go to the muscles, what will happen? The muscles will contract and the hand will move, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And likewise, the hand sensors that are in the biological hand will be sending signals back. I just touched something or I just moved. And we can wiretap into those nerves and capture those signals. And so we would have an understanding from the neural signals of what the movement was and can build that into a feedback loop. And that's not the whole story because where do you get that movement intention to begin with? So in spinal cases of spinal cord, you could do it a variety of ways, but in the, in the largest fantasy – you would actually record signals from motor cortex and uh, they would think the person would think about moving their brain still works, right? Mm -hmm. The brain doesn't mm -hmm. talk to the spinal cord, but they both work, right? Mm -hmm. They're just not talking to each other. And when the person thinks about moving, there's electrical discharges in the appropriate areas of the brain. If you capture those, translate them into the neurobiological signals that would communicate movement of this muscle or that muscle or actually more accurately generation of a particular type of movement versus a different type, then you would have inferred, if you will, what movement they were thinking about, right? Because that thinking is instantiated in electrical activity. So if anybody here just thinks about moving their hand, what happens? There's a yeah. bunch of discharges in your motor cortex. They get sent down into your spinal cord. They talk to the next neuron in the chain that sends it out to your muscles and your hand moves. So we could put these electrode arrays in brain and know what the person wants to do. And that's been done in several people. I've not been personally part of that team. There's one group, Don, John Donahue, out in, um, in Brown University in, in Rhode Island and another group, Andy Schwartz's group uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. And there are videos on the web if anybody wants to see. One recent case is um, a woman had cerebellar degenerate part of her brain just kind of broke down spontaneously. Mm -hmm. So she could no longer move. She's still extraordinarily intelligent, still extraordinarily eloquent. But for 10 years of her life, she's not been able to feed herself, right? Mm -hmm. So the number one thing that people want if they have spinal cord injury, if they have chronic pain, is just make the pain stop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? right? And that's yeah. understandable. The number two thing, if they're not in <clears throat> excruciating pain 
is what actually we all want in life ever since we were two years old, which is <laughs> freedom. I want to do it myself, yeah. mom. Yeah. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter how bad it is. I'm doing it, right? right? Independence. Right. Independently. Yeah. yeah. So think about this. You're frozen, right? You might have a joystick on your neck, but you can't do anything. You can't scratch your nose. can't do mm-hmm. anything. So mm-hmm. given the choice of what she yeah, wanted terrible. to do for the first time was she wanted to feed herself. Mm-hmm. So on this video – which is uh, was on 60 Minutes, but you know it's easily found. Uh, she picks up a chocolate bar with a prosthetic arm, mm. controlled by the discharges yeah. in her brain, and moves it to her mouth and takes the first nibble she's had in a decade. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, right? I, I bet that's pretty touching, yeah. actually. Yeah. Something we all take for granted doing every single yeah, day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We'd, yeah, of course. Now, you know, so where would I fit into that? Um, is m- much importance as moving a prosthetic robotic arm that's not yours is wouldn't everybody actually want to move their own arm well, <laughs> yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. i was going to ask so, you about the implications of this for for people who do have spinal cord yeah. injuries where so, they they're they're not amputees they still have their limbs that's right but they, they still, don't have the signals right yeah so in 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 the, the total visualization and we're just working on the second half but you'd want to put the two together mm-hmm. in the total visualization of this you would capture the signals from the brain and you would interpret those to mean what the movement is that the person wants. Then you would talk to the nerve fibers in the arm and activate the if the person's thinking about a power grip, a, a firm mm-hmm. grabbing of something, right? Then you would activate the muscles that would cause all of the digits of the hand to close. If they were thinking about a pinch grip just between their thumb and their forefinger, their pointer finger, then you would just close those by talking to the nerve fibers that go to those muscles. So it would be a two-stage event, right? Mm -hmm. You'd capture the signals from brain, figure out what those mean, then send the appropriate commands to the biological wires that talk to the muscles. The muscles would twitch. Mm -hmm. Then if you really wanted to get into fantasy land, you'd capture the sensory signals coming back and then jump once again, jump over the broken spinal cord and talk to sensory cortex so the person would feel the movement. Mm-hmm. And we can do three of those really probably pretty well. We haven't linked them together, but we can do three of them pretty well. What we can't do is the fourth just yet. We could give people a sense of something happened, but not in its exquisite richness. Mm-hmm. And a nice analogy is... Uh, and a lot of that is just dealing with the sensors that that you would have to have for... For all of those, all of those intimate touches, pressures, uh, feeling, feeling heat and cold, and it, it's all—it's everything that you're receiving through your senses, right? It's—it's—it's it's, it's not a question of just sending those signals to to whatever uh, appendage that you that you may want to control, but but receiving the 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 tactile feedback from that appendage, right? Wrong. Oh, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for hanging yourself out there. Okay, <laughs> he's turning red, listeners. <laughs> I'm always red. I'm yeah, I'm always kind red. of a ginger, and when I drink, I get even more red. So. so, so that's exactly right for the the missing hand. But remember, we're not talking to the limb for the sensory stuff in this reversed case. Mm-hmm. We would have to talk to the brain. So, what's the real fundamental problem? The real fundamental problem is we don't know the code the brain uses. To do something. So, if our listeners were to imagine uh, a beer bottle in front of them and reaching out and grabbing it with their eyes closed, they might not know there's beer in the bottle, but they would know it's a bottle and they would know that from, they would know whether it's empty or full, mm-hmm. right? 
um, what does the brain have to do in order to create that understanding? It has to do what's called sensor fusion. It has to take input from all different types of sensors. It's smooth. It's heavy. It's um, of a given shape, a given size. And we don't know how to talk to the brain that way. So here's a wonderful analogy. There's a device out there which I've had absolutely nothing to do with and it was originally developed back in the 70s and 80s and has been improved ever since called the cochlear prosthesis. And some 50,000 or more people in the United States who would otherwise be profoundly deaf can not only hear but can understand language. Watching mm. the videos of the people who have oh, had the cochlear oh, implant yeah. and hearing what. sound for the first time or for the first time in however long. Especially when they're little kids. I feel the like first crying sounds. at each and every one yeah, of those dude, that I see. Me too. So, so imagine, as, as important it is for those kids hearing it for the first time, imagine in your adulthood you went deaf. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're kind of past puberty. Picking up a new language is tough. Your social network yeah. depends on communicating with other people. Right. And suddenly or slowly, you are totally or almost totally shut off. You can't communicate anymore. So it's truly deep. It speaks to a really important part of our, our human experience is social well, interaction. It's part of who you are and <laughs> yeah. how you've lived your entire life. Yeah. So, so from a neurobiological level, here's two ways you could approach it, and presently only one of them works. In principle, if we had the right technology and had the right understanding, we could talk to the brain to activate the neurons that are activated by speech in such a way to recreate speech in the brain. And we just can't do that. And it's not a technical limitation. It is. But it's not only a technical limitation. We don't give me every possible electrode in every place I want. I wouldn't know which ones to turn on and what combination. But, right, what the cochlear prosthesis does is to skip all of that. All it does is talk to the nerve fibers coming from the ear, and they send a very, very simple message. The nerve fibers coming from the ear are laid out like the wires on the back of a piano. So mm-hmm. down at this end, they convey low-frequency tones in the middle, middle frequencies, and at this end, the high frequencies. So as from an engineering perspective, you take sound and you go, Oh, here's some low-frequency tones. I'll just bang on those wires. Mm -hmm. And here's some high-frequency tones, and I'll bang on those wires. right? And you know nothing about speech. You don't need to know anything about speech. You don't need to know anything about how brain encodes speech. right? You just send the pixels of information, low-frequency, middle-frequency, high-frequency, and a given Instead of the hammers from the the piano keys hitting those wires, you're you're hitting them with something else. Right. right? And all you have to do is hit the right wires. And then the brain takes those those frequencies and converts them into through magic, right? <laughs> through into into speech understanding. Uh-huh. So wow. we're, we're doing kind of the same thing with um, the hand, right? We would not know how to talk to the brain to recreate the sense of bottle. But what we could do is say, here's five fingertips, four fingertips and one thumb tip that is grabbing this. We know from joint sensors, joint angle sensors in our, our muscles that the hand Digits are about so far away from the thumb, and we know from force sensors in our muscles that we have to contract with a certain force in order to counter gravity, so we know how heavy the object is, and none of this is conscious, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't know the code to do that sensor fusion, but if you're just sending signals up these biological wires of the elementary components, we don't have to know the code. Right. Well, and a lot of that speaks to neuroplasticity, right? Some of it does. So uh, one of the fun things about cochlear prostheses is that unlike most medical devices, they get better rather than worse. So you put in an artificial Mm. hip and 10 years down the road, right, it started to decay a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? It might not be quite as good as it was. 
you put in a cochlear prosthesis for someone who used to be able to speak, right, perfectly, mm-hmm. and the sound is kind of buzzy, and speech accuracy understanding is there but low. And as they get used to the device, they understand it better. So if our listeners have ever had the experience of going to, um, say, Northern England or Scotland or some other foreign country like, say, Texas. Where the accent is so thick yeah. that when you arrive, you're like, what the fuck are they saying? It's really All true. I hear is, oi, 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 oi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then after that, you're there a week or a couple of weeks and it's making sense. And you're there a couple of more weeks and you come back and you're talking that way. Right? Yeah. You didn't even mean to. Yeah. But you've picked that, right? And, and so that's plasticity. Our mm-hmm. brain is wow. learning how to interpret a different accent. And so the cochlear prosthesis has a very limited number of electrodes, very, and, and there's spread of current. So the, the, the sound waves that it sends up to the brain or the neural equivalent of those sound waves is a very imperfect, very imperfect. But the person adapts and they start learning how to, to get the signal out of the noise as if it were a mm. funny accent. Mm. And they get better and they get good enough that they can understand speech over the telephone. I walked into my bank. Um, my bank manager was on the phone. I needed her signature. I waited. I could see her talking on the phone. I walked into her office. I could see these little dots behind her ears. And I said, I hope you don't mind my asking, but I'm kind of working this field or those cochlear prosthesis. And she goes, yeah. And she was talking on the friggin' telephone. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. right. No, no visual cues, no, no visual no lip cues reading, for, yeah, right. no body language, no nothing. Right. Right. So that's, that's, awesome. that's pretty cool. Pure interpretation of sound. Yeah. Yeah. And so in principle, it's the matrix, right? If we could, in the limit, right, only as an illustrative example, activate every fiber coming from your old hand that's no longer there, or activate every fiber coming from the ear in just the way that the eardrum would have activated it, or just the way that the fingertip would have sent it, then the brain would consider them equivalent. Mm-hmm. Right? You have a fuse going to a firecracker. The firecracker doesn't care what lit the fuse. Right. Right. So we got a wire going to a, a brain neuron. We light it with a butane lighter. We light it with a match. We light it with a sparkler. Once that signal's going up, it doesn't matter what started it. So if we activate that fiber with an electrode, instead of a wiggling of the eardrum or a pressure of the fingertip, the signal that's actually being sent to the brain is literally identical. And so if we could make the pattern of signals being sent to the brain identical, literally the brain would know the difference. And so the limitation is we do a modest job of recreating that pattern, but it's imperfect. So would I be correct in assuming that for a neuroprosthesis, you would be using non-biological conductive materials to intercept those signals yeah, or to, to produce them or to so transfer them? Or? That's, that's exactly right. So okay. the, the electrodes that um, are put into the nerves are, are typically not biological ones. They're artificial ones mm-hmm. that carry current um, the ones I happen to use are made out of silicon, so they oh. have met, they're metalized silicon, um, and then each electrode has to be isolated by glass, so it doesn't have crosstalk. Right. And okay. making the device cool. that has a yeah. hundred different electrodes in the space of four millimeters, which is smaller than a grain of aspirin, yeah. means that we're talking oh, to lots of individual wires. Wow! So yeah. you can think of a nerve as like a multi-strand um, cable, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You don't want to activate all of them, no, right? Because no. yeah. they do very different things, right? It's if you had an optical fiber or just a, a cable bundle, and you want to have a telephone conversation between 
person A on one end and person A prime on the other end. You don't want everybody getting the signal. Yeah, right. So the electrodes have to be very precise and talk to wire number one or wire number 17, but not the others. And so that's where we have the challenges because there might be 10,000 different wires in one nerve. And we're putting in only 100 electrodes, which is a lot of electrodes, but it's not 10,000. So it's imperfect. I see. I see. Um, How has this been received? I mean, obviously, there's a huge variety of patients you've seen. Um, yeah, our work. reactions you've gotten. Right, right. Our work is, is just beginning. So we've done four chronic patients, mm-hmm. uh, 50,000 cochlear implants, right? So that's a very established technology mm-hmm. yeah. and, and um, very common procedure. People have it done here at the University of Utah Hospital. What we're doing is still experimental. So one of the poignant things is they don't get to take it home. Oh, uh, don't get to use it. I see. And uh, I remember actually as a grad student, this is just a personal anecdote, but it's funny how sometimes things come full cycle. Um, I was studying at the time learning and memory in the, in the rabbit brain, brain, again, another model system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, we had the animal learning this simple classical conditioning task. Instead of tone means food, it meant tone means a little puff of air to the eye which is actually a task that was formerly studied in humans. So it doesn't have to be much. It just caused them to blink a little bit. And so that's our readout that they now understand the tone means air puff to the eye or tone means I should blink. Right. That's, that's an aside, except that there was a wonderful experiment, which I won't describe that benefited from having the expertise of somebody who knew about the auditory system. And this person's name was Bob Shannon told me about work. He'd been involved in those early days of the first cochlear prostheses. All right. So imagine this, if you will, you're profoundly deaf, but you used to hear, right. You used to be able to talk to your wife, your kids, your friends, your partner, whatever. And it was a big part of your life. Right. Mm. You couldn't, and, I mean, look, you yeah. couldn't listen to the godless revolution if you didn't have this. <laughs> I mean, we're talking serious stuff here. Right. And they go deaf. Right. And then they come in and they participate in this experiment and they can hear again, godless revolution. They can play those podcasts. <laughs> And then it's the end of the experiment. And you know what you say? Take it out. Get back. Yeah. <laughs> that would suck. And people would break down oh, in I bet they would, tears. Yeah. And they say, please, 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 can I keep it? Just give it and back to me, please. I just want to be able to hear. Yeah. And, and um, you can't really force patients to, to do anything against their will. But, you know, in the end, they, they basically had to return it. And the same thing, we're at this stage mm-hmm. now. With our subjects. How, so, and how heartbreaking would that be as mm-hmm. one of the scientists doing that to say, yeah. no, oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I mean, I know they have to have an understanding of it going into it that, hey, this might work, it might well, not work. You're no, to the give thing up. is it was even working. It was just that this is the way you uh, – without going into the, the bureaucratic details, the first thing you ask for is permission because to do something for a limited period of time because nobody knows the long-term consequences yet. Mm-hmm. So you don't say, I'm going to give this to this person and I'm going to take it home. Okay. Now, in our case, it was somewhat comparable, but with an important difference. So let me just tell you this story. One guy, he had his hand crushed, and it was, therefore, had to be removed except for his thumb. Mm-hmm. Except for his thumb. Mm-hmm. He went through 11 more surgeries trying to save his thumb, mm-hmm. and it just didn't work. And so he finally told them, to just take his thumb off too, mm-hmm. right? So this is like um, being in a lifeboat and, you you know, all of your family members but one died, 
Yeah. And now you got one left and you got to throw him overboard. It, it was like horrible for him. Yeah. He comes into our lab. He has the implant done and 21 years to the day after his injury, he participated in an experiment. We're moving only a hand on a computer screen, not a real physical hand. And he sees his hand come alive. And we stimulate through the nerves a couple of days later, and he feels his hand again. Oh, wow. Mm. And it was, you know, truly a very poignant moment oh, yeah. for him and vicariously a poignant moment oh, for I'm us. Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah. To, to see what it's like to restore this. And at the end mm-hmm. of the experiment, we said, okay, you know, time's up. Now, it was less hard for him to to return it because he didn't actually, when he went home with this device in his nerve. Yeah. He didn't have the hand. He didn't have the hand. So it wasn't, you know, functionally useful. Mm-hmm. Right. But where we want to be, and this is the, the target date is four years minus 1.5 months from now. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> and every day is being counted. I'm, I'm not making this up starting February 9th, uh, four years from now. Um, we want subjects to take it home. So they'll have this device it will be attached to a really advanced prosthetic arm that we don't make, not the University of Utah, yeah. but another team makes. And the two will talk back and forth. And there's mm. a whole bunch of other things that go on to this. You need fancy electronics that the University of Utah isn't making. A local company, though, is Ripple. Um, so that it will be wireless. Cochlear implants now are wireless because oh, wow. you don't want stuck sticking through the skin that yeah, could break yeah, yeah. or get yeah. infected. Sure. Yeah. Right? So this really is a very huge multidisciplinary, multi-institutional Wow. effort that uh, the government is coordinating. And to their credit, they have the vision to realize that no industry is going to be able to, or is going to want to do this on its own. Right. Because there are so many different parts. There are yeah. so many different There's moving pieces. There's not enough right? money in yeah. it. So uh, Steve Jacobson. Uh, and how, how sad is that in and of itself? That there know, isn't I, so much more money thrown at this, ty- at this type of technology. If you had a fraction of a percentage of all the churches. If you had a fraction uh, of the percentage of all the money that is spent on war and destruction and well, killing that people, and those mean, are people that need it too. <laughs> I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars spent each and every year to support the war effort versus the, what is it, $4 million, hopefully, $4.5 million, hopefully, over five Dude, years that, or something I like know, that, that's that, such a tiny that you amount could amount get through the- DARPA. I mean, the, the amount that we spend on actually improving people's lives versus yeah. destroying people's lives yeah. is something that makes me so sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I hadn't brought it up earlier. We want to end on like a really no, down note. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, you know, but the truth is the truth, and we we tend to bring that out on the show. And I was also going to ask, how are your praying colleague professors at BYU doing on this? <laughs> BYU doesn't tackle this kind of problem, but no, I, I will not. tell you once. Uh, no, they're they're worried did, about where Zarahemla was in in the Mayan Empire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was a, a talk by an apostle down there several years ago, um, and he was talking about the power of prayer and, and faith healing. And he was uh, highlighted in the same article, ironically, was a student graduating from BYU was talking about wanting to go into the field of neuroprostheses to restore function to people who had lost hands. Mm, and just it was just it. such a striking contrast yeah. to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah, where's your faith? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I but I've been criticized on this show for saying stuff like that. Well, the the other thing that that I know a lot of people find frustrating, myself included, sometimes before I actually think about all of the 
all of the nuts and bolts of it is just how long this type of technology takes mm-hmm. to 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 come into reality, right? Like we know there are so many different things that we can do eventually, but it's putting all of those all of the nuts and bolts and all of those moving pieces together that takes so long and we have to ensure that you know we don't we don't half ass anything, right? We don't want to we don't want to give somebody something that isn't as functional as it should be or or can be and of course I'm speaking generally because we do that all the time. I, I mean, we give people hooks that they can use as, as, yeah. pro- and, as and that's appropriate. Um, but this speaks to an issue about science that um, scientists have mixed feelings about, and, and myself included. So we got a fair amount of splash from going public about what we've accomplished. And I'll admit that I'm biased, but the video is pretty cool to see this hand come alive. Yeah, Hell yeah. It's, yeah. it's not pretty. It's fucking a cool, man. Okay. <laughs> On the other hand, um, it's the I fucking love science version of things, right? Once mm-hmm. it gets above threshold and it's kind of sexy, it captures people's imagination. And I understand that. They're not professional scientists and, and they see it instantiated. They understand it. It resonates with them. That's good. But the downside of it is that people can get a misimpression of what science is when you see only the bling. You don't appreciate yeah. that there was 30 years of yeah. often pretty dang boring research yeah. before this splash. So, well, and, and I mean, yes. you've been working on this for at least 15 years, yeah. right? Personally, but you know, people well before myself. And right. same thing was true for the artificial heart, right? Big news yeah. event because yeah. someone yeah. gets an artificial heart. But the first animal experiment in which that got done – the animal survived only a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the progress is very slow. Very incremental, mm-hmm. often not very glamorous, yep. and that part of it sometimes is is not well understood by the the public or sometimes by certain funding agencies who just say, "Well, let's solve cancer. Let's throw you know some money at it um, today, and we want it to work in four years." If you think of airplanes, the Wright brothers, how long did it last? Thirteen mm-hmm. seconds or something? Eleven seconds? I don't know. If you it had no practical value in and of itself, right? You could walk better and take that plane. But if you don't start with those little things, you never get to the big ones. Well, yeah. and, and so something that I've that I've brought up, and I think probably Matt and Ryan have mentioned it also before on the podcast, is you know you, you hear people say all the time, "Well, thank God for this type of technology. Thank <laughs> right. God for." Allowing these scientists to make this to make these discoveries now, and me not even being a scientist, not even being anybody working in the field, I get I, I get so offended by those types of statements that that it detracts entirely from the from the hard work that people like yourself put into this for fifteen years of your life, not even not even bringing into into account the. The years of experience and trials and, and and experimentation and research and work that people have done before you and say that, you know, thank God that this is able to, to happen now. Yeah. And it detracts from all of the work that people have put into this for so long and discounts everybody else who has never had this technology available until yep. this point yep. to say, apparently <laughs> God didn't give a shit about these people before. Yep. It's just now that he's finally said, "Oh well, okay, I guess I'll let these people do this." Thank kind God of thing for now. saving like, my house from like, the tornado. What, Too bad about you, neighbor. Yeah, what, right. Like, what is your yeah. what is your personal response to something like that? How do you how do you feel when people say something like that? That I mean, in my mind, completely discounts all of the shit that you've done throughout your entire life to lead to these 
breaking discoveries. Yeah, all the very meaningful stuff you've done for humanity. Yeah. Well, as you know, I'm a very mature, calm, and easygoing person. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is it doesn't, it doesn't offend me in, in, the, in, in an emotional way. And the reason is that I, I do understand, and I'm just kind of used to, because I'm like 60 years old, and I've just, you know, after a certain <laughs> while, you know, that people compartmentalize. Yeah. So they just say this stuff, right? On an intellectual level, if I really engage them, and sometimes I get, and I would never do that with some of our subjects or their families or anything, but sure. you know, just abstractly on the web, when we talk about cases like Sierra Nobold and, and I go, do you realize what you're saying that – You're basically saying fuck everybody else before this. That God wanted this yeah. to happen. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do, you, do you understand the implications of that? Um, and if we get into it, then, then it is a little frustrating. But the reality is most of the time it just – uh, if it has to do with my work, it just rolls off my shoulders because it, if nothing else, it's just so common that you stop paying attention to it. You grow a thick hide and yeah. learn to ignore a lot of it. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I care more about being able to, to help people um, than these kind of silly comments. Well, and ultimately that's the goal. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, you're, you're, you're there to help people regardless of what their, what their personal beliefs are. You're, you're there to improve their lives. There's another aspect of this that is not readily understood, which is to do the first of anything is unduly expensive. Yes. Right? So um, there will be several million dollars invented, invested in giving a very small number of people this arm to take home. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And if it were to stop there, then people could argue that the same number of million dollars might have helped other people more. But again – what one really has to think about is that the long-term consequences of this are not limited to this first set of discoveries. Yeah. We all use the internet. We all have these fancy cell phones that can use the internet. The internet used to be extraordinarily expensive. Computers right. used to be extraordinarily Take up expensive. Rooms. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want right. to get the old man stories, but we used, <laughs> when I was a grad student. <laughs> when I was a kid, I have a laptop. Actually, I don't have it anymore, but I, I have what is what at the time was considered a, a portable computing device laptop that didn't even have I, I think it shit I don't I don't know that it actually had a hard drive I think it just had memory <laughs> and it had two 3.5 floppy, floppy. disk drives yeah, yeah. one was for the operating system one was for whatever <laughs> yeah. program you wanted to run and this thing weighed like fucking 50 pounds <laughs> and this was a laptop computer yeah. <laughs> no color screen it was it was grayscale screen and I mean, this thing would be in a fucking museum these days. But back in the day, that was I, like, oh my I, god, you can move that around. I actually was in the day when people were still using punch cards, and the computer was the size of a very large room. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it could do almost nothing. Yeah, right. right. And, and and truly, right and now, that, I have more more computing power in the thing that I'm wearing on my wrist. That and yeah. exactly so. And the point is, that computer was not in and of itself worth the money paid for it. It wasn't, right? right. But the advances only, that came after. That's right. You had to get through that stage yeah. till it, yeah. it got you know, got to be commonplace. Well, and that speaks to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, the 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 science that, that is performed on the sea slugs, where it's it's yeah. taking the things that you learn there and applying them somewhere else or even in the same field to improve your understanding of something to make it better. Oh yeah. Well now's probably a good time to play a little 
advertisement, I think. <laughs> I tried to get to it earlier, but... But I wouldn't yeah, shut up. Okay. Uh, it's just for no. This is. I usually don't either. So honestly, I think this is one of my favorite episodes. I've loved having you here, man. Oh, I, oh yeah, it's been. I would love to have you back here every week. Honestly, yeah. just, <laughs> this has been awesome. I could probably talk to you all night long. Uh, but I wanted to play this little clip about uh, the Save the Forest event coming up. Mm. <laughs> This is Jeff from The Left Show. I want to talk to you about saving the forest. Our friend Forrest Shaw was given a terminal cancer diagnosis at the end of last year. Medical costs and household bills are nearing critical levels, and at this point, the reality of losing their house is a looming concern. That's why we're having a Save the Forest benefit concert. We're trying to raise money to help pay down that medical debt, keep the Shaws in their house, and keep the children healthy and fed. Throughout the years, Forrest has been there for so many of us, it feels like it's just time to return the favor. Join us, won't you? This show's got an amazing lineup. Mary Tebbs, Molten Blue, LPX, Dave Hahn with Fred Hebling, and Magna Vega, including Melissa Merlot, Taylor Hunsaker, Crystal Starr, Rebecca Frost, and the guest of honor, Mr. Forrest Shaw. It's March 20th at Bar Deluxe, downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. To purchase tickets, please visit podcastphil.com. Don't let me die. So if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, why not? You need to go and do that right away. Save the forest. I mean, the sooner the better so that they know how many people to anticipate showing up and they can plan accordingly. And I just want to say I love you, Forrest. Agreed. He's a good dude. Mm-hmm. If you are not already friends with Forrest on Facebook, you should go and do that. Say it's Forrest with two R's. <laughs> Forest Shaw. <laughs> Dan saying that because earlier I wrote play the Forest Shaw promo and I only spelled it with one R. <laughs> but yeah, so I bought my tickets already. I yep. got the uh Friends with Benefits package. Ooh. So I get a hug and a t shirt and I think some other things that I can't think of right now. I think they're giving out head. uh show posters for it. Really was there a poster of the that, that they so. made up? Yeah, I think so. But, but Forrest is a really, really good dude. I I can't imagine being hit with the weight of knowing that you're going to die. I mean, all yeah. of us, of course, know that we're going to die, right? But I and mean, being, a, being hit with something that, 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 that you know, you have terminal cancer, you have X amount of time to live, and that your children will watch you die. Right, that that and and that it's not sometime far off in the distant future or sometime or something that you won't be expecting. You know that this is coming, and you know that your children are going to have to watch you die, and that you'll be in horrible pain up until that time. And yeah. to know that you can't work, that you can't provide for these for these people that are going to have to go through this is really fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. So if you can head over to podcastfill.com. Buy your tickets to the benefit. If you can't attend the benefit, if you're out of town, if you don't live in the state of Utah, whatever, you can still donate, help the Shaw family out. There's, you know, if you, if you aren't aware, and I can't imagine that you wouldn't be, if you aren't aware, a diagnosis of cancer means a shit ton of medical bills. Stage four. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad deal. So they need all the help that they can get. We would really, really appreciate you heading on over there to to donate what you can and or buy tickets to the to the event. And I'll be running around the event with a video camera. Yay! 
<laughs> even even small donations, you know. Absolutely. Five, ten, fifteen, yeah, fifty, yeah. whatever you can do. Like yeah. you know, it's not gonna mean a lot to you, but a ton to that family. Absolutely. You know, who, Every who, little bit will you have them. you have a little, they have less. Yeah. Right. So give what you can. Yeah, and that was the whole idea of behind Podcast Full initially when yep. when when Jeff set it up was those with little Little helping those with less less. yep well that's all we can count on yeah so i mean whatever (laughs) you count on the one percent yeah whatever you can donate as matt said even if it is only five ten fifteen twenty dollars please go and do that they they would greatly greatly appreciate it really help them out so i i do have one science article in there that i thought we could hit real quick yeah while, while having a doctor of some scientific type stuff here with us. <laughs> All purpose science. Yeah, it depends on the field. Yeah. <laughs> Pay no attention so, to that man behind the curtain. Which, which one is it? Uh, it's the head transplant one. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That would be good. So it, it, it deals a lot with the, the, the neural pathways and everything, but it also kind of deals a little bit with, uh, I guess, the morality of physically taking one's head and putting it on another person's body. And these people are predicting that they'll be able to do it within the next two years. They saying they got it. Every- that seems that seems very optimistic. Oh yeah, he, yeah. When he's talking about four years for a hand, <laughs> and two years it's, for a dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- this actually does come up, which is why. Well, what would be alternative approaches? There's no question that what we're doing is a fancy band aid. It's not the optimal solution. What would be better? What would be better would be to regrow the limb. That's one thing that would be better. Yeah, right? salamanders can do it. Why can't people? And yeah. and yeah. actually, um, there's some understanding of what the differences are. And so, if we could turn on the appropriate gene activation pathways, it's in principle could be possible if we have them, right? Yeah. Well, and well, well, we do. So we it do turns out okay. then, um, you know, not exact analogs, but interestingly enough, very young children can regrow digits. Right? Seriously? Seriously. I did not know this. How young? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) I had no idea that this was. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. Um, We're talking not not to get too personal, but born though. Yeah. Oh, okay. So not not fetal. No, no, out of the womb. Okay. And and, and, you know that's that's just an extreme example of something that we probably all know if you've um, reached middle age is that you don't heal as quickly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So um, one of my children was born by C-section and so required forceps to come out. And there was mm-hmm. this big blotch on mm-hmm. his cheeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it looked pretty gruesome. And like the next For day. two to two days, yeah. It was like gone. Yeah. yeah. It was just gone. Not like, you know, sort of gone and gone. Yeah. And I get this little scratch on my pinky now, right? And four and a half months later, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, slowly <laughs> healing over. So the regenerative ca- capabilities of, of, of youth are, are much higher. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in principle, that would be a wonderful approach. We certainly are nowhere near close. One mm-hmm. thing we are closer to doing is hand transplants. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And people can actually do face transplants, which is pretty I, amazing. I, I saw that with the lady that had been attacked by the uh, monkey. Yeah. By the chimpanzee. Yeah. 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 And, and again, this is a big deal because we're social creatures. If you right. are truly horrendously disfigured, you become socially isolated yes. because yeah. – we talked earlier about the emotional brain and the cognitive brain. People understand that, that it's the same person who's horribly disfigured, mm-hmm. but there's this emotional response to, this to the presentation, even yeah. though they understand it intellectually yeah. that, you know, it's hard for them. And, mm-hmm. and the other person senses that they can't talk well because their face is disfigured. Their tongue is disfigured. 
uh, they become socially isolated and, you know, bad things spiral down. Yeah, yeah. So face transplants are possible. Hand transplants are possible. But they, they restore – if there's no other option, it's better than not having it done. But the hand mm-hmm. transplants sometimes restore only limited function – and they require the use of very heavy doses of immunosuppressant drugs. Right. Which so that the body doesn't reject it. The hand. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that in turn has um, some very severe secondary consequences. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not there yet. Well, what would happen if you transplanted a, a brain? A head. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, the whole head. Well, well and to know that – well, and, and even to know that you could potentially one day grow – Grow the same biologic material from from somebody. You could you could take their stem cells and and put it on a frame, and grow a new hand for that person for for eventual transplant. That right? is yet a third approach, that and is, so that's really yeah, cool, yeah. right? And so they've done that with in some limited cases with things like ears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but hands are really complicated. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yes. Well, uh, you know, the short answer is if I transplanted my head onto another body, it would be dang close to still being me. Mm-hmm. Not a hundred percent because the body, the brain is subject to circulating hormones that a few of which can cross the blood brain barrier. And it's subject to autonomic responses that actually influence how I think. But by and large, my brain really is me. And this speaks mm-hmm. to actually a religious issue. This being the theme of the show, if mm-hmm. there were a soul, which there is not. And how can I say that as a scientist, what would be the consequences, <laughs> right? The consequences would be if there's a immaterial existence of you mm-hmm. that doesn't depend on your physical brain that unless you use this escape clause that I'll refuse to uh, allude to later, then manipulations of the brain per se wouldn't affect who you are. You as a, as a person, you as a um, right. psychological being, you as an emotional being, and yet they do. Right. Mm-hmm. So Phineas Gage. Dramatically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you had case. a spirit, if you had a spirit, brain damage wouldn't matter, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm, I'm driving down the road. Alcohol doesn't matter. Officer, uh, my soul is still sober, yeah. so, you know, you can arrest my body. You know, spirit, my soul is clean. <laughs> my spirit isn't touched by the spirits. You know? <laughs> and that's not what happens, right? Yeah. And again, this is, if you'll allow me the term, brain dead simple. Everybody knows, right? That's why the church is opposed to alcohol, right? right? Is right. It does affect who you are right. and what you do. Well, if who you are and what you do wasn't physically instantiated, then that wouldn't be true unless you use this escape clause. And the escape clause is all those rules that operate in the domain where they can be observed suddenly change when the spirit leaves the body. It was just not affected and that the the body was serving as a a barrier between the real you. It's this mortal coil. Yeah. Yeah. And and if but even if that were true, what would happen, right? The idea would be that the more of your body you destroyed, the more free your spirit would be. Mm-hmm. But just the opposite happens when you do brain lesions. Almost invariably, a capacity is lost. Now sometimes there's a yin yang thing going on. So if you drop the yin, the yang is stronger. But it was always there, mm-hmm. right? You never like well, yeah, like part MS, of the brain. MS patients who have who suffer brain lesions, they they lose different. They, I mean, they lose perception of things they lose perception of reality they lose perception of of body autonomy they lose they lose feeling in different things it's all of it is related to your brain chemistry and and the way your brain receives different stimuli yeah so you do a lesion of visual cortex you don't suddenly start seeing an infrared mm-hmm. right i mean everything is destroyed or compromised it, it'd be right. cool if he could it would yeah. be yeah. interesting right 
And this also plays into the, the whole NDE, near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, and again, brain dead simple. You don't need complicated experiments, though complicated experiments have been done. No, Lots of people come back, report stuff. We have some understanding of what the neurobiology is of that. I don't deny, I definitely confirm that they have subjective hallucinations. Mm-hmm. I can give you hallucination with LSD or DMT. Right. Yeah, or sure. with the God helmet. Right? Yeah. Right? It's activating given regions of the brain. There's no mm-hmm. question that people experience hallucinations. And yep. in fact, don't get me started on this. Everything we have <laughs> is actually a hallucination in a certain way. Right? Everybody close one eye. Look out around you. What do you see? What you don't see is a hole. And yet we all know we have a blind spot. We right. knew that from first grade. Mm-hmm. So why don't you see the hole? Because your brain is interpolating what should be there from the surround. Whoops, excuse me. And then instantiating it in neural activity. It's interpolating. But you can't tell the difference between what your brain made up. Right. You're filling in that blind spot is a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what our brains are doing all the time. That's real. But what's not real is that that corresponds to any reality in the outer dimensions. Everything that people come back and tell you is never anything they couldn't have told you before. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They never come back yeah. and say, oh, if you go and dig a in this town across the country, you'll find the body of my sister who was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. They just say, I had a sister. Oh, okay. Well, well that was pretty tough. Well, yeah. and, and right. it all, and it all right. reflects the, the religious beliefs that they've been taught their entire life. Yes. Right? That's you, right. ne- you never have a Christian who dies and, and says they went and met Buddha. Vishnu. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, right. Isn't a dream state something like a hallucination as well? I mean, everything's hallucination. Everything is. <laughs> I am hallucination. We are the Matrix. <laughs> well, this is a fun hallucination. <laughs> but, but I think with the whole head transplanting thing, I mean, it's it's to me, it's the ethical question there. Well, but, well, but where, do you, way, where I mean, do you? You would get donate the, your body to me, wouldn't you, dude? Come on. I mean, I mean, I've been on your show. I mean, I've <laughs> yeah. Some I mean, for tag. But if I'm if I'm dead, but not either, that I'd want that huh, skanky thing. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm dead, I either he got died a bunch of, of shit last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> either I've died of some sort of traumatic injuries, which might render my body no longer useless, or I had an organ useful. fail, me, or yeah, useful, or I've had a, an organ fail, which then again, that body is no longer useful because those organs have failed. So you're gonna. I mean, are you going to Frankenstein a body together in order to take the that right or, parts? Or, or you're just, you know, have been the latest uh, well, friend, but even, friend of ISIS. It's going to be but even then, I mean, <laughs> I mean your, your brain degrades just as any other uh, just as any other body part, right? Brian's I mean, it, it doesn't live on in eternity. It, yeah. so, it's, well, it's not possible but, but that you could this. transplant your brain so, infinite so number is, of times to keep yourself alive. This is That's true, but we're going the other way, right? Okay. So presumably we'd be transplanting my healthy brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, to his skanky body, which is yeah. still alive. But he, he got into That's it. That's no longer useless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, You'd be a foot into... taller, at least. <laughs> yeah. Hey, finally. You know? <laughs> All right, short jokes. It's, it's totally, totally worth it. You know, and if I were a psychopath, he would be brain dead tonight, right? Oh. <laughs> Wake up tomorrow, got the body thing, the transplant going. No, two years from now. I can play basketball. <laughs> Count your days, dude. 365 times two. <laughs> Right. But but this this actually is, is kind of deep, right? What does dead mean? Well, in the old days, dead mm-hmm. meant when your heart stopped. Why? From a simple practical measure, a doc can come up to somebody in the 1800s, listen to the, to the chest, 
right, and determine if the person was alive or not, yeah. right? right? You, you couldn't measure brain activity very well. Yeah. But nowadays, right, you can't harvest somebody's organs if their heart has stopped, right? Barney Clark got an artificial heart. He's yeah. still alive, right? You have yeah. to wait until you, you brain couldn't, You couldn't take involved. Barney Clark while he was still alive and take his kidney out just because his heart's dead, right? That would not be allowable. But literally, when you are brain dead, right, your body parts can be harvested for other people. So, you know, despite religious overtones of what even religious doctors might claim, the, re- the medical reality, if you don't get into the religion, is everybody agrees that, yeah, when your brain is dead – You're dead. You are dead. And if you go back to, since you've raised Frankenstein, do you you know how that story started? No. Okay. So, um, uh, well, I know Mary Shelley wrote it. Right, right, right. And so she, she was the the wife of uh, the the poet and she was in this uh, literary circle. And around that time or shortly before this guy, Luigi Galvani had discovered the secret of life. By accident, but again, he inferred actually incorrectly, but partially correctly what it was. And that answer was electricity. So he took some frog legs and he put them out. Uh, You hear the story in slightly different versions on a a railing. And he put a metal hook through and hang them up, which was a metal type number one. And the metal of the railing was metal type number two. So what do you got? You got a battery. A weak one, but you got a battery. And it's windy, so the frog leg swings in the wind. And when the toe touches... The vertical railing and completes the circuit, the frog leg goes. Mm. And he inferred from that experiment correctly, but for the wrong reasons, that not only did the body respond to electricity, but that it generated it. His experiment didn't actually show that, right? But but it turned out to be true. Mm. And there was a big debate, which is of historical interest, but not final answer between him and Volta i.e. Volta of the Volts, Volts. right, Um, as to whether the body just responded to or also generated electricity. But imagine now, right, we all take this for granted, but imagine being in the the time of of that era and not having any understanding whatsoever of what the life force really was. So when it became clear that it was electricity, it excited the intelligentsia, Mm -hmm. Right, we now have a beginning of understanding of what life is, and if we can return electricity to the body, we could restore life, and that was the basis of Frankenstein. She ran with that idea, right? And you know, we now think of Frankenstein as the monster in common parlance, but the Frankenstein was actually the doctor. Well, right. I mean, well, and Frankenstein actually is Frankenstein's monster. Monster. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, and it, it's actually a sort of a poignant, uh, unrequited love tale because mm-hmm. here's this creature that comes in. We were talking about this earlier, right? Your little kids always love their parents, no matter how abusive they are. They're just gullibility machines. They're whatever. little sponges. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? And so Frankenstein monster loved Dr. Frankenstein, but Dr. Frankenstein looked at this, you know, ugly lunk and like, no, nah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I made a mistake. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I've Get made the code a horrible hanger. mistake. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the reality is our personalities, our loves, our fears, our desires, our hopes, they're all encapsulated in biological tissue. And that's what makes us us. Mm-hmm. I, I wish we could just spend like another five hours talking to you, honestly. <laughs> this has been – honestly, This is, I think this is – Probably my favorite show that we've yeah, done. So been, okay, uh, listeners, time awesome. for the test. Take out a pen and pencil. And, uh, 
But it is that time that we should probably yeah. end the show. Yeah. I, think we're, I think we've ran a bit long, but... We're, we're, we're right on our normal time right now. Are we? Okay. Yep. Good. Well, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come here. No, Hang out with you, you guys. You. It's fun. You're, thank you're, you're you great. so much Thanks for, for doing this on. every week for us listeners to enjoy the benefit of <laughs> oh, wow. your, your chatter and <laughs> your interactions with other people in the community. <laughs> It's thank super. you so much yep, for coming yeah. on, honestly. And I and I hope this has been good for you too to be able it's to fun. you know, I, I know you've done a lot of interviews recently and at a lot of radio shows and stuff where None quite like this. Let's put <laughs> yeah. it that way. Well right, right. Where I mean you talk about your work and, and it's you know, little sound bites and little clips and stuff. So I hope that this has been, you know, beneficial and and that you've been enjoyed able to be your time yourself. It's been wonderful. And, yeah. Yeah. Well super. You know, I I appreciate your work. You know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's a beneficiary, but, uh, but on behalf of them, I think I, I should say that I, I appreciate you and every, all of your colleagues who are doing this kind of oh, work. Yeah. Cause I think, I think it's a, a great benefit to humanity and I think it's, it's coming right at the right time. And, and yeah, well, could have come earlier if the technology were there. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but, uh, you know, pushing it forward and I, let me just comment so, that I, just thank I, I thank you for extending your your remarks to my colleagues because that's really true, and I would love to to communicate who some of them are because they play a huge sure. role in this. So Richard Norman invented the electrode array that mm-hmm. we're we're using, and that has gone back decades. Uh, Doctor Douglas Hutchinson, or Hutch as we call him, has been uh, our surgeon who's been doing these implants and providing us clinical expertise and his work earlier with a different technology some of the groundbreaking work that first communicated to the world that nerves that are severed still continue to work, which mm. is a starting important part of this, oh, right? They, oh, might, they might be dead, yeah. right? Huge. But they're yeah. not. Yeah. Um, Dave Warren and VJ Matthews are people who are doing what we call the decode, which is there's neural signals that we're wiretapping into the nerves to pick up from, but what do they mean? How do you translate those into motion? Um, I have a colleague at the University of Chicago, Sleeman Benzmaier, who's helping us with the opposite problem, which is the ENCODE, which is how do we talk to the sensory system in the way that the, um, the nervous system will understand it. Lauren Reith is involved with making these array technologies better so they work for a longer period of time because this isn't just an experiment for a couple of months. It's something we want to last for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a whole crew of talented graduate students and postdocs who really carry this work forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's a multi Team effort within the University of Utah is a multi-institutional effort across the country and even the world yep. to bring this to fruition. So I'm happy to be here as a spokesperson on their behalf. But yeah. make no mistake, this is not something that I do in my basement. Sure, yeah. sure. Goddamn, yeah. this has just been fucking cool. Yeah, and it, you know, if you've got the chance, look all of those names up that you just heard. Write them down. Look them up. Support them if you can in any way. Let's get some funding up for for these guys. Right, right. Your Congress possibly. members. Yep. Yeah, let's get science funded and not religion. We should have science be at the forefront of of what we want to spend money on. Yeah, yeah how about how about not fifty four percent of our of our federal budget on war? Yeah, our military defense. Just saying, if you can, Dan, the very last video I have in that link, uh, we'll play ourselves out on that. Okay. It it it, it might help. The one says education. The education video. Yeah. All right. It's got a guy you you might recognize in it. But uh, as we say goodbye to everybody tonight, this is just a good reminder to you that our education in the sciences and everything else goes quite a long ways. Yeah, it's important. Hey. It's Henry Rollins. 
Yeah, I, I he speaks quite blatantly, in my opinion. Yeah, he always does. So, uh, until next week. Oh, and next week we have Joanne on. Joanne oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, thank you very much. Next week we have Joanne Hanks and Steve Kuno, authors mm-hmm. of "It's Not About the Sex, My Ass." Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. They're, yep. they're a lot of from fun. a polygamous yeah. cult. Yes. yes, they're in Utah. Yeah, uh, the book yes. is very good. If you haven't read it yet, go and read it. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. It's, it's, it's a, a really good yeah. read. Yeah. yeah, I like it a whole lot. Yeah, she's awesome. All right, until uh, till next week. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> the way out is education. Always has been. Always will be. It is the great leveler of the playing field. That's why some politicians and some people who are of a certain bent not only fear education, they hate education because they realize that minorities, whole demographics will become educated. And when they do that, the prison population will plummet. Equality and the burden of equality, these people will have a slightly narrowed pie slice of wealth. They'll have to give up a little. They'll still be filthy rich, but they won't be super-duper filthy, obscene rich. And people of different skin tones will be making better choices with their life. That is to say, minorities who fill American prisons, who do big amounts of time, who end up having shortened lifespans. And some of this is death by misadventure, bad choices. But a lot of it is a lack of education. And so that's why people who worked in the government for education, like my mother, who worked for health education and welfare and national education and planning until I think two different Republican administrations came to wipe them both out. Uh, education, no, no, level playing field, eek. So that is the way out. So what do you teach in school? You teach aptitude. You teach the ability to learn. You teach discipline focus, application, and how to read, and basic mathematics so someone can open up any book and have the interest, the focus, and the discipline to pursue the knowledge contained therein. And that way they can become a plumber or an astronaut because they have the mindset that says, I can achieve, I want to achieve, and I'm going to sit here with this damn book for eight hours and I'm going to get it because I learned the aptitude. I learned how to sit down, shut up, and apply myself. And with that, the world of knowledge fairly throws itself into your lap. And so that is the great dismal failure of no child left behind. When you teach to a test, you're basically just trying to get reelected. You're looking good at tax time. You're looking good when they come through the building and evaluate you. Well, they learned the test. They learned the test, but they didn't learn how to learn. And so that's what I find as a breakdown in teaching systems. They don't teach you how to think because as soon as you get that under your cap, books are books. Information is information. You just find what, what pleases you. But if you have the ability to learn, you're going to make better choices and you'll have an intellectual confidence that will allow you to really maximize your potential. It's where the idea of robbing a liquor store or putting a gun up to someone's head, you would have literally better things to do with your time. And that's where you see real progress. That's the America you could have, and you could have it in this century. But it would be an America that is a much more level playing field. Democracy would be a far more vigorous thing.
we would be expecting much more of our politicians. Congress would not have these amazing vacations they have. They'd be smarting from getting caned by the people. Because if they didn't do the people's will like they're supposed to, they'd be out of office in two to four or six years. I like that. And Jefferson could stop finally turning in his grave. <laughs> 